church, as people gain more education, they actually become more faithful in their public and private religiosity. So our fear is not that people will find out something that will pull them away from the faith. Not when our doctrine is all truth. That's a pretty big article of faith. All truth. See, we don't fear that you're going to learn something or study something that's going to hurt your testimony. The fear that we have is that you won't study deeply enough, that you'll settle for sensational sound bites on social media and not look into an issue or a topic deeply enough because we are assured that as we study deeply enough, there's nothing you could ever learn that's going to pull you from the faith. It will only deepen your faith. Contrary to public opinion, everything we ever really needed to know, we did not learn in kindergarten. There is so much more to learn. Reading broadly matters. Education matters. Attending your classes matters. Christians versus Pharisees, choosing sides and how to fight for them in the Mormon civil war. Bradgate, what the church must learn from the fall and attempted rehabilitation of Brad Wilcox. Episode 10E, Apotheosis and Alpine Apocalypse. Greetings, intrepid listeners. Welcome back to this series, responding to the rise and fall and attempted rehabilitation of Brad Wilcox, elementary school teacher, BYU professor of ancient scripture, with no qualifications whatsoever in that field, but years of experience teaching seminary, which has officially become the main official criteria for getting into BYU's faculty recently. Mission president, internet hit, and counsellor in the Young Men General Presidency. We have spent several episodes analysing what he said to the young people of my country in his 13th of September 2020 COVID lockdown online fireside, responding to questions from the wonderful youth of the Sunderland England stake. It was part of a series of firesides by Mormon thought celebrities from across the spectrum, lined up by that stake's visionary stake president, who expressed to Brad his concern about how many young people are dropping out of engagement with the church. They were all still there in YouTube last time I checked, and are a very helpful snapshot for future historians of the current state of play of what these leaders and leading academics think and teach. Perhaps this is a good time for me to pause for a moment and share my personal thoughts about Brad after spending so much time researching his life and listening to him speak and interact with young people, and mostly talking about what he teaches rather than who he is and why. I will go into his surprising and unexpected formative years more in the next and final episode in this series. But in a nutshell, I really like Brad. In a church full of totally boring geriatric duffers droning on like brain-dead robots and claiming to be speaking for the endlessly creative almighty God, Brad is a massive breath of fresh air. 
He brings energy, positivity and excitement to how he delivers his message. Speaking as a professional high school teacher, I think he must be a brilliant elementary school teacher and I would not hesitate to have him teach my young children at school because they would have a blast and love him to bits and with that, love learning. And Lord knows we are very short of men in primary school teaching which has had a significant impact on the engagement of boys with education at a crucial stage of their development. But I wouldn't trust him for a moment to educate anyone older than 10. Brad might be wishing now he had stayed in that field that suits him best instead of venturing into the minefields he has blundered into. Not surprisingly, his gifts for engaging public speaking have been recognised and made the most of by the church. They have promoted him through the age group ranks to become a high-profile speaker and now leader of teenagers and on to university level in their desperate need to have exciting leaders try to hold on to the young people who are leaving the church at rates of over 80% now globally, which is crashing the missionary workforce and erasing the future members and leaders of the church. And here is the tragedy in the full Shakespearean sense of tragedy. While he has the persistence and charm and skills to engage young audiences, Brad is mostly lacking the knowledge and experience to actually teach them content that makes sense and addresses the real-life issues a young generation in trust crisis in the information age is facing. His religion is mostly very naive unchallenged and unreconstructed McConkie Mormonism. He is still repeating in very simplistic ways what he was taught as a Sunday school and seminary student in the 1970s. When he does venture into trying to normalise things from the Gospel Topics essays that were regarded as anti-Mormon propaganda back then, like Joseph Smith's Seerstone, it is clear he latches on to the most inadequate and oversimplified mental gymnastics of the apologists. Like most of the general authorities, he has bought hook, line and sinker the idea that the only problems people have with the church that cause them to leave are to do with feelings rather than hard facts. He is a million miles from being an educated intellectual. He admitted in the Sunderland Fireside that as a young person he mostly avoided reading and would blag it, skimming through or finding summaries of set texts rather than reading the whole books, and shared his excitement at discovering a love of reading now, later in life. But he clearly isn't reading the Joseph Smith Papers Project. The books he referenced were in the realm of easy reading, popular analysis of topics, scriptures and historical biographies, and flat-out lying about public opinion survey data by Pew. He is not reading, or coming close to understanding, robust academic critiques and primary documents, or even the common or garden bloggernackle conversations about LDS history and practices. In other words, he is miles away from being an intellectual or a real historian, just like most of the Apostles and Seventies and the lawyers they keep appointing as official church historian. We've just had another one. 
Like the rest of them, he has no idea whatsoever what shaky ground the church's truth claims are on now, or the history of its grappling with issues of racism and sexism and scriptural inerrancy. A clip of the scale of this naivety that encapsulates this perfectly is one I will play shortly in which, like President Russell M. Nelson, he insists that if you stop being a lazy learner and read and study more rather than less about Mormonism, the more this will prove and strengthen your trust in the narratives of McConkie Mormonism of yesteryear. Neither of them have the first clue about the one simple thing they need to realise and get real about, to give their precious church back the future they are frittering away in their dippy grinning ignorance. They have no idea that the more people research and study the church's history and the evolution of its doctrines, the more evidence they will find that it is nothing like what they claim it is. Rusty, who doesn't believe evolution is real, and Brad appear to have no idea that the origin stories and narratives about the development of the church and its culture and doctrines they were both taught growing up were mostly wildly misleading propaganda. And in interview after interview, the church's own official and celebrity historians and apologists keep admitting what we can see for ourselves from their talks and face-to-face broadcasts that the general authorities tend to be very ignorant of their own church's history. Astonishingly, in his recent three-part interview with Mormon Stories, Patrick Mason even stated assertively that we shouldn't expect them to know their religion or be competent theologians. Instead, we should just accept the idea that their skills and role is to run a massive corporation and leave the theology to professional theologians, when of course what they actually claim to be is the prophets, seers and revelators who are the only people qualified to teach and define Mormon theology. We are getting used to these apologists admitting the GAs don't know the history, but this is the first time I've heard one of them insist that we shouldn't even expect them to know their own doctrines. That's a pretty clear indicator of how really bad they know it has got now. I will be revisiting the gobsmacking mental gymnastics of contemporary LDS apologetics by the church's clutch of kosher historians in a future episode. Even as far as the current LDS church leadership goes, their authority is only as good as the extent to which they're acting in a Christ-like way. Is that unfair characterization of what you wrote in the book? That's what the Lord said in section 121. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> so so here, here's my question slash occasional critique. Like, Dallin H. Oaks is on record as saying it's it's wrong to criticize the brethren, even if the criticism's accurate. Um, the, the church makes its members take an oath that they won't speak ill of the Lord's anointed. And Elder Oaks is also on on record saying uh, we neither seek nor offer apologies. To, to many of us, we read the past 40 or 50 years where the church has n- not only, you know, in- encouraged, let's just say, certain racist ideologies, but it, in some senses has even fought 
the civil rights movement. They fought the Equal Rights Amendment and women's rights. They um, knowingly shut down truthful historical projects and initiatives like the Arrington administration because they saw that factual history was, was challenging faith. They excommunicated and silenced critics who were just, in many cases, faithful scholarly truth tellers. So there's a lot of harm, and not to mention the LGBT yeah. you know, stuff. And I could mention a ton of other things, yep. the, the systemic child abuse and the cover-ups, and we could go on and on. There's a, there's, a, there's a degree to which the church needs to follow its own steps of repentance that it taught us to confess the sin, to forsake the sin, to make restitution for the sin, to, to stop it and to promise to do better and then to change your behavior. And I'm sure I'm not alone. We're not alone. I'm, I would even guess you would join us in wishing that the church would actually follow its own prescribed steps of repentance, right? But as long as there are thoughtful progressives like you and the Givens and the Bushmans and the Flumans who are out there on the front lines it's not the church that's answering questions about polyandry and peepstones and polygamy and excommunications, etc. It's not them that are answering the questions. It's y'all. And as long as you are all out, there, all are out there talking to the to the journalists, speaking at the firesides, writing the books, the brethren not only get off easy, but they don't they don't have to ever follow their own steps of of repentance, apologize, forsake, and fix things. And so sometimes I've had this feeling that as much as I love what you're all doing, who you are, what you stand for, and how much good you're doing, there's a part of me that sometimes felt like you're enabling their lack of accountability. Does that even seem, do you under, does it seem, did I make, did I, does my question make any <laughs> sense? And is it deeply offensive? Can you see where I'm coming from? Yeah. Is there any even credibility to it? Yeah. Not deeply, it would be really hard to offend me. Okay. Uh, um, but uh, no, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a good question. I think it's a fair question. So, and, and I think there's two parts to it. One on the apology side. I mean, I'm, I'm on record. I was part of it. It's quoted by Peggy Fletcher Stack in an article. I mean, I, I think institutional, especially in this day and age, I think always, but especially in this day and age, institutional apologies can only enhance the moral authority of the institution. Um, We've seen the way the Pope Francis just did this in, in Canada uh, about the Catholic um, indigenous boarding schools and so forth. Um, I think these, it's, it's um, I understand that institutions aren't people, uh, despite what the Supreme Court may say. Uh, sorry, a little swipe at this, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, corporations aren't people. But, um, but, uh, I, but I do think those principles are true. The principles of, of accountability and repentance um, and, uh, and I think it, it does not, I, I understand. I mean, we, we feel, we all feel this personally, right? What, if, what happens if I admit I'm wrong about something, right? That's, that is hard to do. Um, are people not going to like me? Are people going to think less of me? Right? I mean, it, it's all those feelings that, that come with that. And, and you can take a reputational hit, right? Uh, when, when, when you do it, um, but it's the right thing to do. And, uh, I think, that Mormonism, I think the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is and should be in the truth business, and that includes the accountability business. And so 
So I think it's, um, I don't think it harms us to, to, follow, the, to follow a gospel of repentance. I, I think it applies to the collective body of Christ as much as it, as it applies to the individual within the body of Christ. So I'd like to see more of that. Uh, and I don't think it would hurt the church. I think it would, I think it would, and, and I, I actually don't even care about the, the outcomes. I don't care if it grows the church, shrinks the church. It's, it's the right thing to do. Um, and uh, so, I, so I wish we saw more of that. Now, now do I, do I and my ilk, uh, do, 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 do we uh, provide cover for, for the brethren on this? Uh, uh, I, I, I can see that, but I think also, um, uh, uh, and I mean this with all respect to the general authorities, but I think I uh, have a skill set that most of them don't have. I'm, I'm, I'm a trained historian. Most of them aren't. Um, uh, they're not theologians. They're not called to be theologians. They're called to be general authorities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They're, they're called to run and administer uh, this enormous global enterprise. Uh, part of that, of course, is, is a very deep ministry, but they're not theologians. The, uh, theology is a different kind of, of work that most of them are not trained. For. I mean, we don't... We don't train theologians professionally within our tradition. We've, we've had a little bit of an anti-theological bias. That's starting to change, fortunately, in this century. So we actually have real deal theologians. I just play like one sometimes. Um, but, uh, but they're not trained theologians. They're exceptionally busy as individuals um, who's because of life experience and so forth, they're really good at business and they're really good at law and they're really good at managing institutions and they're really good at human relations and all these kinds of things. Uh, they're not trained theologians. Um, so I think th- this is true of every church in the history of churches, every religious, they need their theologians. They need an independent class of people who are not in charge of running. I do not want to run the institution, right? Uh, like that is an enormously complex endeavor that I don't have the skill set for. Thank goodness. I'm not, the church may be true because I'm not a general authority, right? I mean, it's, uh, so I don't have that skill set um, uh, or proclivity, uh, but other people are really good at it. Uh, what I can do is do some of this kind of historical and theological work that, that I am more inclined for. I have do have training for. So I think it's less uh, about providing cover. What, what I'd like to see is the church actually be more intentional about this, if anything, to actually lean into this division of labor uh, and to say, hey, we are not theologians. There was a great statement by Elder Ballard recently. He said, just because I'm a general authority doesn't make me an authority in general, right? Like, I don't know everything. When I need to know stuff, I need to go reach out to experts. He's actually been great on this in recent years. Um, some general authorities, I think, do think they're authorities in general. Um, uh, but we need a professional class of historians. They do stuff that general authorities can't. We need a professional class of theologians. They do stuff that general authorities can't. It's not about providing cover. It's about complementary skill sets. One is meant to administer and run the church. The other is meant to, to think for the church. Are you able to say if it bothers you that they keep calling lawyers as church historians versus <laughs> historians? No. Uh, I mean, again, they are, and they would be the first to say, every single one of them has said, I'm not a historian, right? <laughs> uh, they're saying, I am here to, to run the department. Of, of church history, right? Uh, but the real experts, I mean, uh, actually, Elder McKay, who's the new church historian, just had to put out a video where he said this very thing. He said, I'm not the expert. The experts work here. Like, these are the, the dozens or however many employees they've got. He said, they're the real experts. I'm just here to run the thing, right? So that doesn't bother me at all. I mean, no? 
No, no, because, especially because they've been so good recently. I, I, it hasn't always been this way in the past, right? Leonard Arrington ran into this, right? Um, but are you kidding me? Marlon Johnson, Steve Snow, right? Elder Curtis, I, I haven't met Elder McKay, right? These are, these are men who are curious. They are smart. They, uh, they know what they know. They know what they don't know. They defer to the historians. They said, Teach, like, you do the historical work, right? A lot of what they do, from what they've told me, is they're the ones who have to translate the work of the historians to, to the rest of the church bureaucracy and advocate for the historians and advocate for why this project matters, why it matters for us to publish all this stuff mm, that's going to make people mad. Interesting. So they, the, um, uh, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here. I, I love and respect Leonard Arrington. I hold the Leonard Arrington chair. He was not... Um, a diplomat. Uh, he, he was he was not as good at navigating the church bureaucracy administratively. He he was a historian through and through. Interesting, right? And this is why higher ed is a mess because it's all academics running. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, I yeah. mean, uh, and and so so uh, let's let the managers be the managers and let's let the historians be the historians. Mm -hmm. And Gen Elder Jensen, Elder Snow, Elder Curtis, now Elder McKay, they are effective, and it's different than Arrington's era because they're the ones who are able to advocate for the work of the historians to the rest of the bureaucracy. Let's just pause for a minute to really notice what Patrick Mason was saying there. I think it was one of the most significant parts of these wonderful interviews and included two really important themes. Firstly, the fantasy version of the LDS Church of the nuanced apologists. And secondly, a manifesto for the takeover of our religion by himself and his academic colleagues, totally usurping the authority of the prophets, seers and revelators. Wait, did you miss that bit? Well, this is the genius of Patrick and his pals. They are so adorably cuddly and reasonable and humble, like Henry the mild-mannered janitor. It becomes the perfect disguise for fighting superheroes. He and his sidekicks are actually Hong Kong Fui, dicing up the unsuspecting First Presidency and Quorum of Twelve Apostles with ruthless karate chops that are quicker than the human eye. They don't even see it happening. And nor do we most of the time. First, let's talk about Patrick's imaginary version of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is something that massively frustrates the dissident critics of the church as they do battle with its more nuanced rather than fundamentalist apologists. In reality, the LDS church is demonstrably a high-demand fundamentalist religion or cult or whatever you want to call it in the iron grip of a very wealthy, powerful and dictatorial cabal of old men who punish dissent ruthlessly and relentlessly insist on their own infallibility and unquestionable authority as perfect mouthpieces and representatives of God. Mormonism didn't have to end up this way. I've been arguing in this podcast that it has the potential and doctrines to be the total opposite of this concentration camp of American-centric stupid and control freakery. But at the moment, this is the reality we are living with. The modern, educated, nuanced, open-minded critics of the church plead for it to practice accountability and common consent. 
for its leaders to notice and listen to the pain and concerns and questions of the ordinary members, to show Christ-like compassion and what is meant to be Mormon-like willingness to seek more knowledge rather than Pharisee obsessions with made-up regulations and hostility to real education. And they get excommunicated and shunned for it. These apologists, however, pretend we already have that church, that it is essentially benign, that different points of view are welcomed, and most infuriatingly of all, they pretend that the leaders don't claim to be infallible, and that the church members don't believe they are infallible, when they very obviously do. In their fantasy version of the LDS Church, the dreams of the dissidents have almost all come true already, and it is rushing to embrace a scientifically credible and inclusive feminist and LGBTQ-friendly future, rather than doubling down on ancient bigotries. And as we heard astonishingly from Patrick in this conversation, the First Presidency and Twelve Apostles would be absolutely fine with accepting that their job is to keep the lights on, the callings called, and the money flowing, and not even pretend to be authorities regarding doctrine or history or receive revelations about these matters. The irony here is that the nuanced academic defenders of the LDS Church, like Patrick, are so used to being open and honest about the ignorance and incompetence of the apostles when discussing the Church with each other and with scholars and journalists outside of Mormonism, in much the same way as the post-Mormon community is able to speak honestly and freely amongst themselves in their own safe places and Facebook groups, they keep slipping into a false sense of security and kidding themselves that because they haven't been excommunicated yet, the mainstream church membership and leaders are fine with them doing that. They really are not. They just haven't really noticed that the apologists are saying these things in public yet. Patrick described a couple of conversations with GAs he thought might be more intolerant, and so far it's gone well for him, particularly his insistence in public that the racism was a sin, which surely Dallin Oakes has never heard about, or Patrick would have been in the musket firing line a long time ago. The reality is these apologetic scholars have only a tiny audience and a tiny influence in mainstream active Mormonism, like the dissident podcasters, especially outside Utah Valley. I doubt if more than one other person in my ward has ever heard of him. So, because of that false sense of security and getting away with being dangerously honest, these nice apologists frustratingly end up perpetuating a massive dishonesty that their version of the LDS Church is the real one that exists now, and it drives the critical analysts of the Church who are not regarded as kosher like them absolutely nuts. I hope they carry on getting away with this for as long as possible, because we desperately need insiders advocating for the same reforms and honesty we are campaigning for but it only needs the eye of Dalin Sauron to turn in their direction and shine its hellish fiery light on what they are really teaching, and they may find themselves victims of a September 6 massacre round two, especially if they discover what Patrick said next. 
Patrick actually laid claim to a new LDS job description. He and his friends in Mormon studies should be ideologically running the church. They should be the people having and communicating all the big ideas that should define our religion. He has basically completely disparaged our general authorities as having any capability to understand and teach history and to understand and teach theology, which in Mormon jargon means doctrine, the philosophy and beliefs of our religion. Patrick said all that should be left to other people with the relevant academic qualifications. Uh, and I mean this with all respect to the general authorities, but I think I uh, have a skill set that most of them don't have. I'm, I'm, I'm a trained historian. Most of them aren't. Um, uh, they're not theologians. They're not called to be theologians. They're called to be general authorities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They're, they're called to run and administer uh, this enormous global enterprise. Uh, part of that, of course, is, is a very deep ministry, but they're not theologians. The, theology is a different kind of, of work that most of them are not trained. For. I mean, we, don't, we don't train theologians professionally within our tradition. We, we've had a little bit of an anti-theological bias. That's starting to change, fortunately, in this century. So we actually have real deal theologians. I just play like one sometimes. Um, but, uh, but they're not trained theologians. They're exceptionally busy as individuals. Um, who's, because of life experience and so forth, they're really good at business and they're really good at law and they're really good at managing institutions and they're really good at human relations and all these kinds of things. Uh, they're not trained theologians. Um, so I think that this is true of every church in the history of churches, every religious, they need their theologians. They need an independent class of people who are not in charge of running. I do not want to run the institution, right? Uh, like that is an enormously complex endeavor that I don't have the skill set for. Thank goodness. I am not, the church may be true because I'm not a general authority, right? I mean, it's, uh, so I don't have that skill set um, uh, or proclivity, uh, but other people are really good at it. Uh, what I can do is do some of this kind of historical and theological work that, that I am more inclined toward. I have do have training for. So I think it's less uh, about providing cover. What, what I'd like to see is the church actually be more intentional about this, if anything, to actually lean into this division of labor uh, and to say, hey, we are not theologians. There was a great statement by Elder Ballard recently. He said, just because I'm a general authority doesn't make me an authority in general, right? Like, I don't know everything. When I need to know stuff, I need to go reach out to experts. He's actually been great on this in recent years. Um, some general authorities, I think, do think they're authorities in general. Um, uh, but we need a professional class of historians. They do stuff that general authorities can't. We need a professional class of theologians. They do stuff that general authorities can't. It's not about providing cover. It's about complementary skill sets. One is meant to administer and run the church. The other is meant to, to think for the church. Patrick said all that should be left to other people with the relevant academic qualifications. And bizarrely, he implied this is what the other churches do. This is total nonsense, and reveals he isn't anything close to as expert about history and theology and other denominations as he thinks he is. Senior Catholic, Anglican and even Evangelical clergy are primarily theologians, and are expected to study theology and Christian history at university level in order to qualify for their roles. 
There has never been a separation of roles between priest and theologian in their churches when determining who decides the doctrines. As John DeLynn and all the rest of us have to keep exclaiming in these conversations with the liberal apologists, what world is this guy living in? How does that idea of the division of labour have anything whatsoever to do with the real-life LDS idea of being led by prophets and apostles who determine and interpret doctrine and receive the revelations when more of it is needed? I mean, obviously the apostles are not actually doing their job description, and these days in general conference they mostly make excuses for not asking God questions, not receiving significant revelations about doctrine or theology, and not being able to miraculously heal people. But that is still meant to be their job description, not handed over entirely to the scholars. Patrick is proposing a complete reconfiguration of the entire religion. He also did not mention any kind of common consent accountability to the general membership to vote to authorise or reject whatever theology or official history he and his crew come up with. So it would seem his regime would be just as elitist and unaccountable as the Salt Lake Priesthood and Curtin McConkie gerontocracy's regime. But while bearing no resemblance whatsoever to the official worldview and practices of the LDS Church, the constitutional arrangement Patrick described, with general authorities only doing lawyer and business management stuff, while the academic scholars do all the thinking and hard work, making Mormonism's history and doctrine credible in the 21st century, where everything can be fact-checked at the click of a keypad, is, arguably already happening by default. He has earned the right to say what he did, and claim that role as one of the church's leading theologians instead of the apostles and prophets. Now don't get me wrong, gerbils could run this church better than the current nepotistic shambles, and educated historians like Patrick would definitely do a better job given a choice between them and the Deseret Zimmerframe Massive but there is no place anywhere in Mormon history and thought for all of our religion's theology to be determined by scholars. But he is describing a situation that has kind of already happened, while the GAs are totally oblivious to it, like they are oblivious to almost everything else. It's not quite as ludicrous as it first seemed to me when he said it. Patrick and his academic Mormon studies colleagues, the scholars at the church universities and the church history department, and the amateur apologists like Fair, have for decades now been doing all the hard work, keeping the general authorities' credibility and show on the road. The apostles have contributed almost nothing, except occasionally making it all worse, with homophobic and racist rabble-rousing and cock-ups like the November policy they then had to U-turn. Until the 1990s, the role of historian and theologian and general authority were completely integrated. Apostles mostly understood and communicated as deep thinkers. Whether they were the liberal, science-friendly ones like Hugh B. Brown and James Talmage and John A. Whitsow, or the fundamentalist control freaks like Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce R. McConkie and Boyd K. Packer. 
they were all totally immersed in the history and theology of our religion. They completely understood that this was their primary responsibility. They took responsibility for trying to keep their messaging consistent and the details in the lesson manuals kosher. And please also note that none of them were just lawyers or business managers. Hubie Brown was a farmer, soldier, lawyer, academic teacher of religion and oil prospector. He had a passion for integrating science and religion and ending the church's racist segregation. James Talmage, who was the last British-born apostle the church has had and converted my great-grandmother, Jeannie Bleakley, was a chemist and geologist and university president. He had a passion for integrating science and religion. John A. Whitso was an agricultural scientist and university president. He had a passion for integrating science and religion. Joseph Fielding Smith was a farmer with very little formal education. His son-in-law, Bruce R. McConkie, was a lawyer, military intelligence officer, and affinity fraudulent businessman. Google Memorial Estates Security Corporation and find out how his company he co-founded targeted elderly Latter-day Saints to invest in it by claiming connections with the LDS Church and misrepresenting its real business model much like the affinity fraud insurance scam Paul H. Dunn was later involved in. Boyd K. Packer was an Air Force pilot and a teacher. These people all had diverse backgrounds and education, but they all made time for educating themselves about their scriptures, history and doctrines, and taught and published intensively about them. The major difference in general authorities today, as this podcast and many others have been documenting, is that they don't do their homework to become experts in church history and doctrine, and nearly all come from education and careers as lawyers and businessmen, precisely the people Hugh Nibley strongly warns the church never to put in charge in his leaders and managers speech at BYU. Why? What is the specific danger that creating a self-perpetuating and self-replicating managerial class of lawyers and business managers poses? So much so that it crashed the Roman Empire and any other community they come to dominate, as Hugh Nibley warned. The reason is simple. Lawyers define success as concealing and manipulating people's perceptions of the truth about their clients and fighting efforts to hold them accountable for their mistakes and crimes. Business managers define success as making massive amounts of money on investments, convincing customers to believe exaggerated claims about the products they are selling to them for money, convincing people to pay for additional products and services they don't really need in their lives and may not be in their best interests, restructuring workforces and work schedules, and building status symbol prestige buildings in new territories. Does any of that sound familiar? The priorities of lawyers and business managers are the literal opposite of truth, being totally honest with people and having the truth make them free, and giving money away rather than hoarding it. 
Their priorities and criteria for success are the literal opposite of Jesus Christ's religion. When I was young, the prophets and apostles constantly referenced in their talks the hours they spent studying the scriptures and meditating about them, and the insights and revelations they received during that prayerful study. They were given respect as doctrinal authority figures because of their study and knowledge, not their ordinations. These days, the apostles hardly ever mention doing that. They whiz about the world, pontificating and having terribly important meetings with each other, and then talking to us at length about their terribly important meetings with each other as they pompously humble brag from pulpits to the lowly peasants excluded from that inner circle. They demand respect as authority figures because of their ordained senior priesthood status, and teach that it is their ordinations rather than their study and humility, that makes them the exclusive recipients of revelations and infallible knowledge from God. As Patrick described, they are far too busy to stop and read and think anymore, so like corporate managers they have delegated that to the BYU professors and the apologists and get them to bail them out if a tricky problem comes up without really understanding what they are talking about. I have described two blatant examples of this backfiring on them in the Mormon Civil War podcast. The first was when forger Mark Hoffman had convinced Dallin Oaks to believe a fake account by Martin Harris of Joseph Smith's vision of Moroni involving a salamander in a fireplace. In the rush to damp down embarrassing publicity and integrate this into the traditional narrative, he gave a talk in the year I started as a 14-year-old seminary student at the 1985 CES Doctrine and Covenants Symposium at BYU, titled Reading Church History, in which he repeated an apologetic response put together for him by Farms, the foundation for ancient research and Mormon studies that was later integrated into BYU and renamed the Maxwell Institute. In that talk, he pompously disparaged the reliability of the news media and academic research in general, said the mistakes of Mormonism's founders were very minor and should be left out of what the church teaches its people, literally taught that Mormons and anti-Mormons are under no obligation to present Mormon history in a balanced way, but academic writers must be totally free from bias, and patronisingly chided people for not realising that of course it is totally normal to talk about salamanders in association with the angel Moroni teaching Joseph Smith about the location of the Book of Mormon. He referenced research notes by farms that he was having circulated. Nothing he taught there has aged well, but it was an example of being bailed out at short notice by the academic apologists and presenting the tenuous lifeline they threw to him as obvious truth with his own authority and reasoning. Dallin Oaks was also involved in the other standout example, where apostles gave it all away regarding their dependence on apologists to help them gaslight church history. 
In November 2019, Dallin Oaks and M. Russell Ballard did their infamous face-to-face with the young adults of the world, in which Ballard insisted that they were both experts in Mormon history and knew that from the actual beginning of time, the leaders of the church had never hidden anything from anybody. As an example, he referenced the idea that Joseph Smith's first First Vision account had been intentionally suppressed and hidden from the members by the general authorities. To refute this, he waved a folder someone had given him containing the April 1970 Improvement Era article that first referenced the 1832 account, and Dallin Oaks joked, We've been hiding that for a long time, after they both admitted they have not been reading the Joseph Smith Papers Project volumes presented to them and sitting on their shelves at home. What advice slash guidance would you give for answering tough questions about uh, church history when we are asked about them by someone who's struggling with their faith? I think the first thing uh, is to distinguish between questions and doubts. Some people merge those as if they were the same. A uh, question asked with a sincere desire to increase one's knowledge and understanding is the way to to increase knowledge, we encourage questions, and on the other hand, a doubt is an ambiguous word. Sometimes a doubt is a synonym for a question. You just want to know the truth about something. But one dictionary definition of doubt is accompanied by distrust. Um, a rejection of, of something. And that's the kind of thing that the scriptures have condemned. Uh, uh, the Savior, for instance, said, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? He said that to his apostles when they were in the midst of the storm. And doubt not, but be believing, uh, comes out of Moroni chapter 9. And look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. That's Doctrine and Covenants section 6. So doubt is a confusing word. Uh, in some aspects, we don't encourage doubt and the scriptures condemn it. On the other hand, questions, sincere desire to know that aren't accompanied with a presumption of, of uh, rejection uh, are something that we that we wish to encourage. And, and some, uh, some are uh, saying that the church has been hiding the fact that there is more than one version of the, of the first vision, which is uh, just a, a, a f- not true. The facts are we don't study, we don't go back and search what has been said on the subject. For example, Dr. James B. Allen of the BYU in 1970, he, he, he produced a, an article for the church magazines explaining all about the different versions of the first vision. How long ago was that article? 1970. That was we back in 1970. So been hiding that for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's this, it's this, this, this idea that the church is hiding something that which we would have to say as, 
two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. Now we've had the Joseph Smith papers. We didn't have those where they were in our hands now. And, they're, and so we're learning more about the Prophet Joseph. As wonderful we are. There's volumes of it. There's so much of in those books now in my bookshelf. Maybe you've read them all, but I haven't got yeah. I'm a slow that reader. That much. So <laughs> just trust us wherever you are in the world and you share this message with anyone else who raises the question about the church not being transparent. We're as transparent as we know how to be in telling the truth. We have to do that. That's the Lord's way. It was a total car crash. And if they had made any effort whatsoever to learn church history, to investigate and understand the top 10 criticisms of the church and its deceptive propaganda about its history, causing rampant trust crisis of lifelong church members, or even just done a quick internet search, as part of their preparation for addressing the whole world and presenting themselves as totally reliable experts in church history, and using the 1832 First Vision account as their defence, they would have known, or discovered in time, the following inconvenient truths. 1. The 1832 First Division account was cut out of the notebook it was written in and hidden in his safe for 30 years by Apostle and Church Historian Joseph Fielding Smith to make sure the members of the church never found out about it because it radically contradicted later accounts of the vision. Number 2. The only reason it was referenced in the Improvement Era magazine in 1970 in the first place was that Joseph Fielding Smith told a 70 who told a journalist about the hidden anomalous account of the first vision. Embarrassing publicity in the newspapers asking what had happened to this missing account forced Joseph Fielding Smith to return the censored pages to the notebook allow a friendly Mormon scholar to research and prepare a report to publish about it. Then President Smith decided not to publish that research and hope no one would notice, so superstar anti-Mormon researchers Gerald and Sandra Tanner published his research, and only then did the church leaders give the green light for it to be mentioned in this church publication. 3. The hiding of the 1832 First Vision account, arguably the most important account of all, as it was the very first one and nearest to the claimed event around 12 years earlier, and one of the very few accounts written in Joseph Smith's own handwriting, is example number one in evidence presented by critics of the general authorities for hiding the most significant possible documents and information from their followers. President Hinckley recklessly declared in general conference that our entire religion's credibility rests upon whether the first vision happened, and what it proved about God the Father and Jesus Christ being separate personages. We declare without equivocation 
that God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared in person to the boy Joseph Smith. When I was interviewed by Mike Wallace on the 60-minute program, he asked me if I actually believed that. I replied, yes, sir. That's the miracle of it. This is the way I feel about it. Our whole strength rests on the validity of that vision. It either occurred or it did not occur. If it did not, then this work is a fraud. If it did, then it is the most important and wonderful work under the heavens. Reflect upon it, my brethren and sisters. For centuries the heavens remained sealed. Good men and women, not a few, really great and wonderful people, tried to correct, strengthen, and improve their systems of worship and their body of doctrine. To them I pay honor and respect how much better the world is because of their bold action. While I believe their work was inspired, it was not favored with the opening of the heavens, with the appearance of deity. Then in 1820 came that glorious manifestation in answer to the prayer of a boy who had read in his family Bible the words of James. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Upon that unique and wonderful experience stands the validity of this Church. In all of recorded religious history, there is nothing to compare with it. The New Testament recounts the baptism of Jesus when the voice of God was heard and the Holy Ghost descended in the form of a dove. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw the Lord transfigured before them. They heard the voice of the Father, but they did not see Him. I knew a so-called intellectual who said the Church was trapped by its history. My response was that without that history we have nothing. The truth of that unique, singular, and remarkable event is the pivotal substance of our faith. But this glorious vision was but the beginning of a series of manifestations that constitute the early history of this work. But the huge skeleton in the cupboard is that there is no historical record anywhere of the first vision being mentioned by anyone at all until 1932, two years after the church was officially founded. And this first account says nothing about two personages. The explanation for that being that in the first years of the church, Joseph Smith still believed and used the language of the traditional Trinitarian God in his translation of the Book of Mormon and the lectures of faith that were the doctrine part of the original doctrine and covenants. It was a few years later that he shifted to a three separate personages godhead, edited the Book of Mormon to remove the Trinitarian language about the relationship between Heavenly Father and Jesus, 
and added seeing two personages to later accounts of the First Vision. So the matter of the 1832 First Vision account could not have more significant implications and risk for the next two apostles in line to be president of the church, after Russell Nelson, to be discussing in a global broadcast to the rising but rapidly disappearing next generation of church members. They screwed it up completely in their blundering ignorance. The icing on the cake of this utter shambles was that while waving around a copy of the Improvement Era in front of everyone in the face-to-face as proof of the church's transparency, none of his audience would be able to actually find it and read that article for themselves anywhere on the church website or online library. Why? Drum roll. Because the church is so desperate to hide the often wildly racist and sexist things its prophets and apostles taught and published until the 1970s from the members, it only presents on its website the archive of Enzyme magazines, the Enzyme which replaced the Improvement Era as the church's main magazine for adults from 1971. As my wife just put it, they thought they were being so smart. Honestly, how could they be so thick? If you are going to try and convince a sceptical world that you are infallibly speaking for God the whole time, it would be really helpful not to make these kinds of rookie errors and make it so obvious that you have no idea what you are talking about or what the truth you are claiming unique divinely appointed expertise about is. And I have discussed before how Elder Ballard then rubbed salt in the wound and broke the last thread of hope and trust I had in these people to ever reform by contradicting everything he had taught the CES staff a year earlier about being totally honest and owning the difficult history when he told all the young adults to tell all their friends that leaders of the church have never hidden anything from anybody. The entire delusion and hope that these men had started to realise and address their problems with any kind of integrity crashed in that moment for me, and I've been on the warpath in this civil war seeking a different process for saving the church from them ever since, as it was made incredibly obvious that it is a complete waste of time and foolishly naive to expect the apostles to do it. They simply cannot be trusted to hold the same train of thought for a year when they do appear to realise what the real problems are and raise our hopes. They always, always, always revert to type in the long run and disappoint us. They have done this on racism, sexism, homophobia, honesty about church history, safeguarding children from sexual abusers and made themselves classic examples of deceptive Satanists who say one thing and do another, lie with shameless, smiling regularity, and don't keep their promises. Satan is the father of lies. We don't have time for that game anymore, and they have flip-flopped so often now everyone needs to just grow up and accept that, and move on rather than clinging to what is now a foolish hope that somehow these 15 apostles are going to fix the mess. 
At every level, these desperate and self-sabotaging attempts at apologetics by these ignorant old duffers, relying too heavily on a piece of evidence handed to them, presumably at short notice by some trusted apologist, without actually knowing or understanding or asking anything about its context, is emblematic of how much has gone pear-shaped in our church since the apostles stopped bothering with studying their own history and theology. The current 15 apostles are the generation of junior GAs who are raised and mentored in their formative years in the McConkie Mormonism regime of hiding the truth and only teaching propaganda by actual Bruce R. McConkie and then Boyd K. Packer, Spencer W. Kimball and Ezra Taft Benson. They are what you get when you practice your own propaganda and don't trust or look at sources critical of the church and have other people filter that for you. They grew up and still live inside the bubble of delusion. Instead of cleverly creating the bubble of delusion and information censorship while knowing all about what they are hiding from their followers, like the previous generations who created that bubble in the first place. The key message of the dystopian novels and films warning us about systems of thought control, like Thea von Herbo's Metropolis that was made into an iconic movie by Fritz Lang in 1927, George Orwell's 1984, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, and Kurt Wimmer's Equilibrium, is that the evil people running these totalitarian systems that hide information and burn books and art and suppress individual thought and culture and history in order to rule don't practice what they preach. Big Brother reads and loves and understands the big ideas in the books he is throwing down the memory hole and burning. He has the masterpieces of art no one is allowed to know about on his office walls. He sees his role as knowing all about everything so he can decide what is safe for his people to know about and what to hide from them because it is dangerous for them to know those things or it will make them realise they shouldn't be putting up with his system of thought control and exploitation. He has to be free to read anything so he can stop them being free. I have only just now noticed how this idea of withholding information from the faithful for their own good was powerfully embedded in Mormonism from the start. The primary reason given for us not having the golden plates the Book of Mormon was written on now, and why they had to be returned to the angel, is that there is a sealed portion of them. They have a metal band around them, because what was written on them is so dangerous, we are not ready yet for that knowledge, and a prophet of old was inspired by God to make sure we didn't get that knowledge, until we were strong and faithful enough to have it translated for us to read like the rest of the book. What have we been told is in that sealed portion? The complete record of the visions of the brother of Jared, quotes, of all things from the foundation of the world until the end thereof, close quote. I also seem to remember reading in it that the Book of Mormon's original prophet editors also withheld the details of how the Gadianton robbers ran their conspiracy mafia 
so that we wouldn't be equipped to replicate it. The New Testament has a reference to a similar secret knowledge when Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12 that, quote, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise, and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter, close quote. So this has normalised in Mormon thought all along, that it is acceptable for prophets to know things that we do not, and to withhold it from us because in their judgment we cannot be trusted with the whole truth. We cannot be taught true principles and trusted to govern ourselves and decide for ourselves to resist bad or dangerous ideas about how to behave. It establishes an overall paradigm in Mormonism that the prophets have to be guardians of the public good, treat adults like children, treat everyone else in the world as weaker and less wise than they are. This has been one of the really terrible ideas in Mormonism that has fed into all the censorship and thought control freakery destroying the church and its credibility now. But as my civil war paradigm points to, we have also been gifted with the much healthier opposite. Be completely honest in all your dealings. Our religion is all truth, as we heard Brad teach at Enzyme College in the intro to this episode. Teach people correct principles and then trust and allow them to govern themselves, even if they make poor choices. The choices are for them to make, not the first presidency. And the way to resolve and choose between these contradictions in big ideas in Mormonism and know which to reject is simple. What would Jesus do? What comes from a place of love, freedom to think and choose for yourself, and empowering individuals to progress and become like God. The system of control by highly informed tyrants, understanding all the big ideas and deciding which their minions can be allowed to know about, collapses when Big Brother is replaced in power by the ignorant people he withheld that knowledge from, and who then continue to stay away from it, even though in our world it is all just a click away online. Every forbidden idea and book and document. So, inevitably, now that the Epsilon minus semi-morons of the LDS Zion's Brave New World have been given by the internet access to most of the books and art and ideas that Big Brother was withholding from them, and freeing themselves from the Matrix, while the men in power are intentionally keeping themselves in ignorance through laziness or fanaticism, the inevitable outcome is revolution and a collapse of their regime. Soon there will be only a small handful of fundamentalist fanatics left, like the Hitlers and the Goebbels families in their bunker as Berlin was overrun by their enemies. The last loyal Nazis were incapable of thinking of any option but suicide and trying to punish their own people for not being strong enough and declaring the end of their utopia, their Reich, 
because they could not imagine it existing without them. As I've said before, this is why I think our dying prophets keep declaring that the second coming of Jesus is just around the corner, and the teenagers will be the last generation before the millennium, and the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and far worse than any previous age of history, when very obviously it isn't. This is why they have just accepted that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is going to stop growing and get progressively reduced to a small remnant of what it once was, and are clearly doing nothing close to enough to try and stop that collapse happening in their stubborn refusal to look at the real problems and take advice about how to address them. They get so poisoned and warped by having absolute power with no accountability in the LDS Church, that inevitably, as Doctrine and Covenants 121 warns, the power goes straight to their heads, and they develop a ludicrous sense of themselves and their era being the most important in history ever, and everything they imagine in that frenzied state of pride being the mind and will of God. And they cannot imagine a world carrying on quite happily for generations after they have died without a momentous apocalypse. So, for a century now, they have increasingly ramped up the propaganda of panic. The end is nigh. Do it now. It is one minute to midnight. Hasten the work. These are the last of the last days. The more silly their hysteria becomes, the more their followers realise they are being selfishly manipulated and that the apocalypse didn't happen for the last 2,000 or 200 years of Christian and Mormon panicking about the end being now. And then they find out how much these men and their dumbed-down easy-reader history books are still lying to them about, and they leave. Dallin Oaks, David Bednar Jorg Klebingat and Kevin Pearson may have inherited the dark sabre of the McConkie Mormon Pharisee dictatorship from Boyd K. Packer, but in a crucial way they are all fundamentally different to the previous Sith masters. They are very lazy learners and have made none of the effort to be on top of what is going on ideologically in their religion. Instead of doing the hard work of reading the real history, even the real history now being published by the church, like the Joseph Smith Papers volumes. They instead consume the mental gymnastics that FAIR publishes, and the intentionally elementary school reading level single narrative presented in the easy reading saints books, which carefully avoid any of the alternate documents and evidence and interpretations of familiar narratives that are essential to understand in real historical analysis. They think they therefore know the history and are experts in it, but what they are basing that assumption on is intentionally biased propaganda following Dallin Oaks and Russell Nelson's clear instructions in the 1985 CES Symposium that this is all the church should publish and that being balanced, meaning being fully honest, fully informed and objective regarding evidence, is not their responsibility. And hey presto, those same two men are now running the church. They told us all 37 years ago what they were going to do regarding honesty and history, and they are doing it. 
As soon as he was made an apostle, Dallin Oakes wrote his policy document for the Q15 on the 7th of August 1984, strategizing the war against secular civil rights for LGBTQ people that you can read online if you Google principles to govern possible public statements on legislation affecting rights of homosexuals. And they have been following that ever since as well. All that matters to these men is that they have authority and high status, not knowledge and the real divine power that comes from compassion and truth, as Doctrine and Covenants 121 describes. By abdicating that responsibility to learn the whole truth and farming it out to apologists and church-broke historians on their payroll, they made themselves, and with them the church they rule, a total laughingstock of inept and ineffective propaganda and obvious lies. And this is the world enthusiastic but very naive Brad Wilcox has grown up in, and is cheerleading for in a carefully censored and curated fog of ignorance, packaged and presented to him all his life as the righteous straight and narrow path of the truly faithful. A lot of the church members think and assume the general authorities are still studying hard and carefully scrutinising every word that appears in LDS publications and study manuals before authorising them, because of the example previous generations of conscientious and control-freak apostles and 70s set. But they very obviously are not anymore. All of that has been delegated to subcommittees in the Ivory Tower's Byzantine bureaucracy. As I have noted in previous episodes, this was made obvious to everyone when their Book of Mormon Come Follow Me manual was printed and distributed with a terribly embarrassingly racist quote, edited down from an even more racist quote by racist Joseph Fielding Smith, as the only explanation for the Lamanites being cursed with a dark skin by God, the biggest elephant in the Book of Mormon room in 2020. It led to that vanishingly rare thing, an apostolic apology. Gary Stevenson was dispatched to grovel and apologise to the black people at the Martin Luther King Day banquet of the Salt Lake chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, and lie to them, promising that everyone in the church would be told to ignore that chapter and use an online alternative instead that week. This, of course, never actually happened, because they are shameless deceivers especially to black people. If any general authority with the slightest clue about the history and ongoing open wound of the LDS Church's racism had been involved at all in vetting the flagship study guide of the Church in the year President Nelson was desperately trying to build bridges with the NAACP and detoxify the Church's racist reputation, that quote would have never got anywhere near that manual and they would have made some kind of competent effort to finally face up to and reframe the racism in the church's flagship scripture, the keystone of our religion. What on earth do we have 15 apostles, several quorums of 70, count them 70, and an army of admin 4, if they cannot even get that right? 
The incompetence of their entire system is truly epic. We all know how LDS Mormonism fills its members' lives with mostly ineffectual and distracting busywork and an infinity of meetings while also keeping everyone oblivious to the most important thing self-sabotaging their religion until it's too late and everyone is being eaten alive by truth sharks. As Patrick described, a radical change has occurred. The general authorities now spend most of their time flying about the world in business class with a punishing schedule of meetings and conferences to speak at, and trying to persuade enough people to care about and staff President Nelson's exponentially growing list of unfinished temple building projects. If he really thinks there should be a division of labour between theologians and corporate managers organising the workforce and finances, why on earth aren't they delegating the tedious admin stuff to the 70s and giving the apostles time to be apostles and concentrate on study and revelation and the big theological picture stuff? That is meant to be their job. Please bear with me taking this deep dive. There is so much to unpack in what Patrick said. It's got my brain fizzing. There is so much he openly admitted or implied about the state of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that this podcast has been discussing and trying to make sense of. We should be able to assume that the church that spends far more time in Sunday school classes and scripture study than worship and has its teenagers and young adults complete four-year intensive church history and theology education courses in seminary and institute, followed by a lifetime of Sunday school lessons, provides more than enough training for all its adult members and leaders to be highly informed and trained historians and theologians, whatever else their careers or however busy their general authority meeting schedules are especially if they are now in their 70s and 80s and have been educated by the church for decades, literally a lifetime. But Patrick has admitted, number one, that the church's own education programmes are utter moriankama and actually leave you less intelligent with their relentless dumbed-down sub-elementary school level intellectual rigour. He admitted that it is totally failing to equip Latter-day Saints, including their global leaders, with the knowledge they need to have the first clue about real history and theology. 2. He admitted that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is primarily a financial corporation, requiring the skills of a lawyer and a business manager to lead rather than the skills of Jesus Christ, or someone modelling their lives and priorities on Jesus Christ. It's pointless even expecting the general authorities to do theology competently. Patrick Mason isn't the only one realising this and talking about it. Keith Erickson, the church's director of historical outreach and star of the British Rescue a year ago that I will get to soon, and all the other bright young and middle-aged things like Terrell and Fiona Givens, Matthew Grow, and Stephen C. Harper, who are running the church's history and apologetics interface with young members and propping up the church's intellectual and doctrinal credibility, have all reached the same conclusions if you listen carefully to their interviews on podcasts. 
they regularly state bluntly or imply that we have been lied to about church history, that the general authorities are mostly very ignorant about church history, and that they personally no longer trust what the GAs say about history, but look at original source documents and make their own conclusions about how the restoration happened from those. I'm itching to share with you a deep dive into Stephen Harper's interview with Saints Unscripted in June 2021, and we'll be getting to it in a future episode focused on the state of LDS apologetics. It was called, Have You Felt Lied To or Deceived by the Church? The wild combination of mental gymnastics and brutal honesty on display as he discussed that was thrilling to watch. They have lost any trust whatsoever that the apostles and prophets know what they are talking about when it comes to history and doctrine. They do not trust their authority to speak for God or speak the truth in these matters, and they are saying so in public regularly. But they don't get disfellowshipped or excommunicated for it. They are basically making exactly the same informed and reasonable criticisms of the state of the LDS Church and its leaders that the September 6, John DeLynn, Bill Reel, Jeremy Runnels, Sam Young, Natasha Helfer and little old me were all excommunicated for saying out loud in social media. Maybe, eventually, the general authorities will stop being busy jet-setting long enough to pay attention to what their employees are actually saying and crack down. Daring to talk about Heavenly Mother already seems to have led to them expelling Fiona Givens from the Maxwell Institute at BYU. This was an ungrateful slap in the face to the Givens after Terrell participated in Geoffrey Holland's destructive review of the Maxwell Institute before tearing its testicles off in front of its leaders and invited guests in November 2018 in his talk The Maxwell Legacy in the 21st Century, in which he instructed them to abandon academic credibility and become a dumbed-down propaganda machine and gave them permission to lie without any fear of punishment from the apostolic overlords who are their board of directors. We can't have the lady people presuming to usurp their authority, but so far the boy academic apologists are playing a blinder and getting away with it. And thus it is that the uninformed children raised in the bubble of ignorance are now the people at the pulpits telling us to go ahead and research everything more deeply, because there is nothing we will discover by researching more that could threaten our McConkie Mormonism testimonies. What could possibly go wrong? My dear brothers and sisters, my call to you this Easter morning is to start today to increase your faith. Through your faith, Jesus Christ will increase your ability to move the mountains in your life. Even though your personal challenges may loom as large as Mount Everest, your mountains may be loneliness, doubt, illness, or other personal problems. Your mountains will vary. And yet the answer to each of your challenges is to increase your faith. 
That takes work. Lazy learners and lax disciples will always struggle to muster even a particle of faith. To do anything well requires effort. Becoming a true disciple of Jesus Christ is no exception. Increasing your faith and trust in him takes effort. Now that focus on education continues in the church today. Research indicates that Latter-day Saints, both male and female, have a significantly higher level of educational attainment than does the population of the United States as a whole. It's true in our country, it's true in countries in Europe, in Canada, in the Orient, and in Latin America. In Mexico, a member of the church is 30% more likely to have a higher level of education than those who are not members of the church. Interestingly, church members are very unique because worldwide, in every denomination, as people get more education, they usually become less faithful. Publicly, like going to church meetings, and privately, like saying prayers. You've seen that to be the case all around you. But it's not the case in our church. We are the only church in which the opposite is true. As people gain more education, they actually become more faithful in their public and private religiosity. So our fear is not that people will find out something that will pull them away from the faith. Not when our doctrine is all truth. That's a pretty big article of faith. All truth. See, we don't fear that you're going to learn something or study something that's going to hurt your testimony. The fear that we have is that you won't study deeply enough, that you'll settle for sensational sound bites on social media and not look into an issue or a topic deeply enough. Because we are assured that as we study deeply enough, there's nothing you could ever learn that's going to pull you from the faith. It will only deepen your faith. So our fear is not learning and education. Our fear is illiteracy. People who can't nourish their testimonies because they can't read. Our fear is illiteracy. People who have the ability to read, but they choose instead to do anything else. That's what we're afraid of, because then they won't be able to continue learning. And they, that's when their faith will be in danger. Contrary to public opinion, everything we ever really needed to know, we did not learn in kindergarten. There is so much more to learn. Reading broadly matters. Education matters. Attending your classes matters. And there is a hurry. Along with an urgency about education, we should feel an urgency when it comes to repentance. Since he and President Nelson taught that the answer to trust crisis is to study more about the church, 
it seems over the last year that some of the general authorities, and especially the Prophet's wife, have realised the fundamental flaw in that strategy and in their totalitarian paranoia have switched strategy to telling everyone to be far less informed about everything, to simply stop engaging with the news, stop investigating academic research or any sources of information and perspective the church does not publish, and only follow social media feeds from the prophets, including in the October 2022 general conference we just had. Prophets are called by the Lord to do difficult things, to speak unpopular things, not smooth things, as Isaiah wrote. The Lord's prophets can see things we don't see and hear things we cannot. The Lord speaks to his prophets, instructing them what to say and do that will bless and protect all of God's children. Therefore, as we choose to follow the prophets, we will be blessed spiritually and temporally. The media, social and otherwise, is filled to overflowing with ideas that are contrary to the teachings of prophets. In fact, so much that is offered as truth is just silly, much like the emperor's new clothes. However, prophets help us discern specious notions, as well as their intention to trap us, trip us up, and basically wreck our lives. So how can we protect ourselves amid the war of words that rages all around us? I suggest we compare anything and everything we read, view, or hear with the teachings of the prophets. If it isn't in harmony, we should run away. The question we can use as a litmus test to discern truth from error and to help us with a multitude of our personal dilemmas, decisions, and questions is, what do the prophets say? Let's start there. Let's use prophetic words as our standard of truth. For this new year, let's put an exclamation mark after every statement from a prophet and a question mark after everything else we read, see, or hear. Would you like to try that with me for 30 days and see what happens to your heart and mind? You may notice a decrease in the amount of stress you feel as you are able to see through the false philosophies of men that produce a kind of tension and anxiety that can almost immobilize us. What would happen to your level of peace, clarity of thinking, joy, experience of love, and spiritual prosperity if, for 30 days, you started to question everything the world's media and all other sources offer you, and instead prayerfully studied, fully embraced, and lived by every prophetic teaching you could find. What would happen in only 30 days if you chose to follow the prophets with exactness? Prophets testify of Christ. Their sole desire is to help us find and stay on the covenant path that leads back to Him and our Heavenly Father. The recent October 2022 General Conference was in some ways the usual predictable smorgasbord of a bit of grace-based Christianity, a tidal wave of ludicrous self-contradictions and pharisaical control freakery, and the most obvious mental gymnastics, and the now obligatory Desnat Nazi fundamentalist talk, insisting we cannot compromise an inch 
on any of the hundreds of doctrines and policies the church expects of us and that the leaders are infallible. Last time this was delivered by Jörg Klebingat, but this conference, an almost identical talk, was delivered very appropriately by the current boss of the Mormon Gestapo, the Strengthening Church Members Committee, Kevin W. Pearson, who coincidentally has more than a passing resemblance to Heinrich Himmler with his puffy face and spectacles, and has the same ability to sincerely and firmly preach uncompromising totalitarianism and justify the carnage it causes in our religion. Like the architects of the Holocaust and their propaganda about Jews as insidious infiltrators and enemies within our communities, he dripped poison and paranoia about how among us in the church are Satan's agents, who long before they leave the church choose to leave righteousness and their covenants, and who we can only resist by uncompromisingly modelling for our children unquestioning loyalty to the great leader and fanatical, never casual, exact obedience to him. If our spiritual foundation is shallow or superficial, we might be inclined to base our willingness on a social cost-benefit analysis or a personal inconvenience index. And if we embrace the narrative that the church consists primarily of outdated or politically incorrect social policies, unrealistic personal restrictions, and time commitments, then our conclusions about willingness will be flawed. We should not expect the principle of willingness to trend positively with social media influencers or TikTok enthusiasts. The precepts of men rarely align with divine truth. The church is a gathering place for imperfect individuals who love God and who are willing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That willingness is rooted in the reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This divine truth can only be known by the power of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, our willingness is directly proportionate to the amount of time we commit to be in holy places where the influence of the Holy Ghost is present. We would do well to spend more time in meaningful conversation discussing our concerns with a, lovely, uh, with a loving Father in Heaven and less time seeking the opinions of other voices. We could also choose to change our daily news feed to the words of Christ in the Holy Scriptures and to prophetic words from His holy living prophets. The importance we place on our Sabbath day observance, paying an honest tithe, holding a current temple recommend, attending the temple, and honoring our sacred temple covenants are all powerful indicators of our willingness and evidence of our commitment. Are we willing to put forth more than a superficial effort into strengthening our faith in Christ? Heavenly Father loves us perfectly, but that love comes with great expectations. He expects us to willingly place the Savior at the very center of our lives. The Savior is our perfect example of willingness to submit to the Father in all things. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The Book of Mormon is our most powerful resource for growing and restoring 
our faith. Willingness is the catalyst of faith. Mortality by divine design is not easy and at times can be overwhelming. However, we are that we might have joy. Focusing on the Savior in our covenants brings lasting joy. The purpose of mortality is to prove our willingness. The great task of life and the cost of discipleship is to learn the will of the Lord and then to do it. True discipleship leads to a fullness of joy. Are we willing to pay the price of discipleship? The covenant path is not a simple checklist. It is a process of spiritual growth and deepening commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. The central purpose of every commandment, principle, covenant, and ordinance is to build faith and trust in Christ. Our determination to center our lives on Christ, therefore, must be consistent, not conditional, situational, or superficial. We cannot afford to take vacation days or personal time off from our willingness to stand as witnesses of God in all times and in all things and in all places. Discipleship is not cheap because the companionship of the Holy Ghost is priceless. We live in unprecedented times, long foretold by ancient prophets, a day when Satan rages in the hearts of the children of men and stirs them up to anger against that which is good. Far too many of us live in a virtual world awash in entertainment and messaging hostile to divine identity and belief in Christ. The most powerful spiritual influence in the life of a child is the righteous example of loving parents and grandparents who faithfully keep their own sacred covenants. Intentional parents teach their children faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they too may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. Casual and inconsistent covenant keeping leads to spiritual casualty. The spiritual damage is often greatest on our children and grandchildren. Parents and grandparents, are we still willing? President Nelson has warned that in coming days it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. This is a clear and unmistakable warning to trim our lamps and increase our spiritual oil reserves. Are we still willing to follow the living prophets? What is the level of spiritual oil in your lamp? What changes in your personal life would enable you to have the influence of the Holy Ghost more constantly? Today, as in the times of Jesus, there will be those who will turn back, unwilling to accept the price of discipleship. As harsh and hateful criticism is increasingly leveled at the Savior's church and those who follow Him, our discipleship will require a greater willingness to straighten and strengthen our spiritual spines and heed them not. If our spiritual foundation is built solidly on Jesus Christ, we will not fall and we need not fear. Behold, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind, and the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days. May we always be willing in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
before we behold the inevitable slow-motion car crash as all of those fundamental flaws and chickens came home to roost for all to see in a disastrous talk Brad gave to three stakes in Utah. Let us first experience and celebrate Brad at his very best. Just to mess with our heads, a year after speaking to Sunderland Stake and four months before the Alpine Avalanche, Brad gave one of the most important, helpful and brave general conference talks of the last decade in the October 2021 general conference, entitled Worthiness is Not Flawlessness. I could have kissed his feet. After years as a youth and a youth leader and a parent in our church, as well as a professional teacher of teenagers, a general conference speaker had finally tried to do something about the utterly appalling mess of sexual shaming and totally unrealistic expectations we pile onto our children. The evil, evil, demoralising stupidity of teaching children, as I was taught starting in primary, that if you have repented of a sin and then commit it again, the forgiveness for all the other times you repented of it is erased and it all comes back again. You are a dog returning to your vomit, quoting Proverbs 26.11 and 2 Peter 2.22. At last, a general authority stood up and admitted that this is unhelpful. When I was a teenager, I was bombarded with the ideas in The Miracle of Forgiveness by Spencer W. Kimball, which I am delighted to say I never actually read through terror of what it would make me think I had to go and confess to my bishop based on what reading it had done to several of my friends. And the infamous Little Factories talk in the October 1976 priesthood session of General Conference about the dreadful evils of masturbation by Boyd K. Packer that I did read when it was published as the toxic guilt trip in pamphlet form to young men only that has also been thrown down the memory hole by the church. They have taken the film of that talk off the website and stopped publishing the appalling pamphlet. Like many other people, if I could go back in time, one of the first things I would do visiting my young self is set fire to those two publications in front of me, and give a half-hour lecture about boundaries, and give myself permission to flatly refuse to ever discuss anything of a sexual nature, ever, with an untrained man alone in a room who I had been told could read my mind and was representing actual God as if it was Judgment Day. My experiences in those interviews were at the absolute milder end of the spectrum and I was very lucky that my interviewers were good people doing the best they could and not the voyeuristic predators or fundamentalist fanatics who ruined the lives and relationship with God of far too many of my peers. But my teenage and young adult life were still a firewalk of totally unnecessary guilt and anxiety that went on for years that could and should have been 100% positive and joyful years, 
that we are all impacted by and still trying to disentangle from our conditioning. This talk by Brad Wilcox would have been my oasis in the desert of apparently God-given guilt and shame if I had heard it and my leaders had applied it when I was a kid. But it came decades too late. It is shameful for the entire institutional church that it took this long for a general authority and general conference to wake up to the harm they have been doing to young people that has driven 80% of them away and actually say something to try and stop it instead of piling on more of the guilt. Isn't it amazing how easily a positive and well-intentioned message can be misunderstood? This is what sometimes happens with God's messages of repentance and worthiness. I love my grandchildren, imperfections and all, but that does not mean I don't want them to improve and become all they can become. God loves us as we are, but he also loves us too much to leave us this way. Growing up unto the Lord is what mortality is all about. Change is what Christ's atonement is all about. Not only can Christ resurrect, cleanse, console, and heal us, but through it all, he can transform us to become more like him. Some mistakenly receive the message that repentance is a one-time event. God's message is that, as President Russell M. Nelson has taught, repentance is a process. We read in Preach My Gospel, repentance and recovery may take time. So forsaking sin and having no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually are lifetime pursuits. Life is like a cross-country road trip. We can't reach our destination on one tank of gas. We must refill the tank over and over. Taking the sacrament is like pulling into the gas station. As we repent and renew our covenants, we pledge our willingness to keep the commandments, and God and Christ bless us with the Holy Spirit. In short, we promise to press forward on our journey, and God and Christ promise to refill the tank. Some mistakenly receive the message that they are not worthy to participate fully in the gospel because they are not completely free of bad habits. God's message is that worthiness is not flawlessness. Worthiness is being honest and trying. We must be honest with God, priesthood leaders, and others who love us, and we must strive to keep God's commandments and never give up just because we slip up. Elder Bruce C. Hafen said that developing a Christ-like character requires patience and persistence more than it requires flawlessness. The Lord has said, the gifts of the Spirit are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep all my commandments and him that seeketh so to do. One young man I'll call Damon wrote, growing up I struggled with pornography. I always felt so ashamed that I could not get things right. 
Each time Damon slipped, the pain of regret became so intense, he harshly judged himself to be unworthy of any kind of grace, forgiveness, or additional chances from God. He said, I decided I just deserved to feel terrible all the time. I figured God probably hated me because I wasn't willing to work harder and get on top of this once and for all. I would go a week and sometimes even a month, but then I would relapse and think, I'll never be good enough, so what's the use of even trying? At one such low moment, Damon said to his priesthood leader, maybe I should just stop coming to church. I'm sick of being a hypocrite. His leader responded, you're not a hypocrite because you have a bad habit you are trying to break. You are a hypocrite if you hide it, lie about it, or try to convince yourself the church has the problem for maintaining such high standards. Being honest about your actions and taking steps to move forward is not being a hypocrite. It is being a disciple. This leader quoted Elder Richard G. Scott, who taught, the Lord sees weakness differently than he does rebellion. When the Lord speaks of weaknesses, it is always with mercy. That perspective gave Damon hope. He realized God was not up there saying, Damon blew it again. Instead, he was probably saying, look how far Damon has come. This young man finally stopped looking down in shame or looking sideways for excuses and rationalizations. He looked up for divine help and he found it. Damon said, the only time I had turned to God in the past was to ask for forgiveness, but now I also ask for grace, his enabling power. I had never done that before. These days I spend a lot less time hating myself for what I have done and a lot more time loving Jesus for what he has done. Considering how long Damon had struggled, it was unhelpful and unrealistic for parents and leaders assisting him to say never again too quickly or to arbitrarily set some standard of abstinence to be considered worthy. Instead, they started with small, reachable goals. They got rid of the all-or-nothing expectations and focused on incremental growth which allowed Damon to build on a series of successes instead of failures. He, like the enslaved people of Limhi, learned he could prosper by degrees. Elder D. Todd Christofferson is counseled to deal with something very big. We may need to work at it in small, daily bites, incorporating new and wholesome habits into our character or overcoming bad habits or addictions most often means an effort today followed by another tomorrow and then another perhaps for many days, even months and years. But we can do it because we can appeal to God for the help we need each day. Some mistakenly receive the message that God is waiting to help until after we repent. God's message is that he will help us 
as we repent. His grace is available to us no matter where we are in the path of obedience. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf has said, God does not need people who are flawless. He seeks those who will offer their heart and a willing mind, and he will make them perfect in Christ. So many have been hurt by broken and strained relationships that it is difficult for them to believe in God's compassion and long-suffering. They struggle to see God as he is, a loving father who meets us in our need and knows how to give good things to them that ask him. His grace is not just a prize for the worthy. It is the divine assistance he gives that helps us become worthy. It is not just a reward for the righteous. It is the endowment of strength he gives that helps us become righteous. We are not just walking toward God and Christ. We are walking with them. Across the church, young people recite the young women and Aaronic priesthood quorum themes. From New Zealand to Spain to Ethiopia to Japan, young women say, I cherish the gift of repentance. From Chile to Guatemala to Moroni, Utah, young men say, as I strive to serve, exercise faith, repent and improve each day, I will qualify to receive temple blessings and the enduring joy of the gospel. I promise those blessings and that joy are real and within reach for those who keep all the commandments and him that seeketh so to do. When you feel like you have failed too many times to keep trying, Remember Christ's atonement and the grace it makes possible are real. His arms of mercy are extended toward you. You are loved today in 20 years and forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 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 Brad Wilcox, like all of us, has had his moments of greatness People in their 20s now often reference a talk he gave about forgiveness and grace that was the oasis for them in the shame desert of their youth and is the most downloaded speech ever given by anyone at BYU. He gave me a glimmer of hope with his not-flawlessness talk that the church was finally going to turn a corner with the sexual shaming of young people. But all of that went up in flames on the evening of the 6th of February 2022, when in front of the youth of the Alpine Utah Tri-Stake Fireside, he bounded up to the pulpit with his puppy dog positive energy and said all of this. I know how much these adults are focused on you. I know how much of time they dedicate to be able to help you and strengthen you. So I'm grateful to have them here, many of them seated right here. Because there's a lot of love coming from this stand for you and for the youth. And I can feel that. See some good role models. Those young single adults that are being chosen to be your counselors, they're gonna be like heroes to you. You're going to look at them. They're just enough older than you that you're going to understand how cool they are. And then you're going to say, wow, they can dance like maniacs and they can still 
love the gospel. They can have fun and they can cheer and they can lose their voices screaming and yelling, but they can study their scriptures every day. And for many of you, you'll see for the first time that having a strong testimony of the gospel and having fun can actually be the same thing. And you're going to come away from that experience very changed and very uplifted. When they started doing FSYs in Korea, they had about 4% of their youth going on missions. And now they've got about 40% of their youth going on missions. So there are miracles that are happening all over the church. And you're going to see some of those miracles happen right here this summer. You know, I was in a meeting with Elder Uchtdorf a couple of weeks ago, and he said, we need FSY, not only to bolster and strengthen the youth, but we need this to be able to strengthen their parents. He says, when the teenagers come home this summer from FSY, and they're standing at their pulpit in their, in their home ward, and they're bearing testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel, says maybe that's going to get the parents to quit fighting about vaccines and masks long enough to remember they're members of the true church of Jesus Christ. I don't care what kind of arrangements you have to make at work. I don't care what kind of schedules you have to change to get away from your family reunion. I don't care what has to happen, but I need you to be at FSY. The Lord needs you to be there at FSY. Uh, I, I want to read you something that I read in the newspaper. This children is called a newspaper. Um, we used them in the olden days. Look how we scrolled down. Whoa! Whoa, did you see that? Whoa. Well, in the newspaper, it says that young people are leaving religion. And it compared your generation to my generation on four important questions. Number one, is religion very important? 59% of my generation said yes. 41% of your generation said yes. Now you can see that those numbers are going down in every category. And uh, you don't need a newspaper to tell you that. Because how many of you know somebody who used to go to church who no longer goes to church? Raise your hands if you know somebody. Yeah, look at all those hands. Now, let me tell you two things about that. Number one, our church is doing much better than many churches. As people are turning away in a secular world from all things religious, um, many churches are being hurt by it. Our church is weathering that storm much better than most churches and especially much better than most Christian churches. I know you think, whoa, but everybody's leaving the church. No, if you actually look at the numbers, there's not any more leaving now than have left to any generation in the history of the church. People left in Kirtland, Ohio. People left once the saints moved to Salt Lake. I mean, people have left the church in every generation. And the numbers aren't that different. The difference is that now people leave very publicly, where people used to just step away and nobody knew about it. Now they leave on TikTok and thousands of people watch them as they sit and gripe about the church. And so because it's so public, then we think, oh, everybody's doing it. But that's not the case. 
The church is strong. The youth of the church are strong. The young single adults of the church are strong. And there's not that many more leaving now than there were when I was growing up. It's just happening in a much more public way. Now, what scares me about people making the choice to leave isn't that we have a few less people in the church. Doesn't bother me that we have fewer people sitting in the pews. What bothers me is that we have the church in fewer people. That's what bothers me. Because they're going to face the same challenges we face. They're going to face the same struggles and the same trials and the same heartbreaks. And they're choosing to do it in the absolute hardest way possible. They're choosing to do it without God, without Christ, without the church. So tonight, let's talk about six different doctrines that you find here in the church that you can't find elsewhere. Maybe some people can leave some churches and they don't miss that much. But you leave this church, you miss everything. You miss everything. Let's talk about the blessings of the gospel that you can only find here. We're going to tie each one up to a letter in the word gospel. G-O-S-P-E-L. As easily as you can spell the word, you're going to be able to remember what we learned. And when you go home and your mom says, what did you learn at the fireside? You're actually going to be able to tell her. And that will be a miracle. Yeah, but maybe Joseph Smith lied. If you haven't heard that yet, you certainly will. Lots of people say, oh, he just made it all up. He just made up that story. But people who go there don't understand why we lie. Because you certainly don't lie in an effort to be found out. You don't tell your teacher, I didn't get my homework done because aliens beamed down and sucked it into the mother ship. No, your teacher's never going to believe that. So what do you tell? Well, not you, because you don't lie. But what do your friends tell the teacher? Yeah, the dog ate my homework. Oh, my gosh, my mom washed it in the washing machine. Oh, the one I hear at BYU where little children have signed an honor code is my printer broke. Every time a paper is due, you have no idea how many broken printers fill Utah Valley. It's, it's just an epidemic. Now, why do they say that to me? Because it's something I might believe. Do you think Joseph Smith was that different? If he were lying, then he would have said what everybody wanted to hear. He would have said, I saw God, and God and Jesus are one being, and God and Jesus are spirit. That's what people wanted to hear. That's what they would have believed. And yet he didn't say that. He said, God and Jesus are separate beings with physical, tangible, perfected bodies. Whoa, that is so far out of the realm of believability that Joseph Smith proves himself either a horrible liar, I mean, he was bad at it, or a speaker of truth. See, so you want to walk away from the church? Say goodbye to your whole concept of God. I had some kid at BYU say to me, I don't believe in Joseph Smith anymore. 
but I still believe in God and Jesus. And I said, look, I don't mean to be rude, but do you realize how stupid you just sounded? He's like, what? I said, you don't believe in Joseph Smith, but you still believe in God and Jesus. You separated them. Who taught you to do that? Who taught you that they're separate beings? Joseph Smith. So don't tell me you don't believe in Joseph Smith anymore when your whole concept of God, your whole covenant relationship with him is thanks to Joseph Smith. My son served a mission in Japan. And I said to him, wow, that must have been really interesting to teach people who don't have a Christian background. He says, oh, yeah, it was, because they don't know the Bible stories. They don't celebrate Christmas. They don't celebrate Easter. I said, how on earth did you get them to join the church? He said, they read the Book of Mormon. And then when they gained a testimony that Joseph Smith was a prophet, then they believed any being who happened to come to Joseph Smith. And we know that that being was Jesus Christ. You hear people say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in Joseph Smith. But there are people in Japan who say, the only reason I believe in Jesus is because of Joseph Smith. But we're not screaming we're number one, saying we're better than everybody else. We're saying we're the only true church in a spirit of invitation. President Boyd K. Packer used to say, truth's like a piano keyboard. Some churches play a few notes. Some churches play several octaves. But we're the only church that has a whole piano. So when we are saying we're the only true church, we're just inviting people to come and see what we can add to the truths that already fill their lives. If they think they can play some pretty music now, Man, we want them to know that they can play like Jackson. I mean, we want them to know that they can play with the whole piano. And I don't want to lose the whole piano. You walk away from the church, say goodbye to the whole piano, have fun playing chopsticks the rest of your life. I don't want to play chopsticks the rest of my life. I want to play like Jackson. And to do that, you have to have the whole piano. So G stands for? O stands for, S stands for spirit. Now, I had a fight with a missionary companion once because he said that Latter-day Saints are the only ones who can feel the spirit. And I said, uh-uh. And he said, uh-huh. And I said, uh-uh. he said, uh-uh. And that's how missionaries fight. And I said, look, if they can't feel the spirit, what do they feel? On Christmas Eve, when they're singing Silent Night and the little kids are all dressed in bathrobes doing the manger scene, what do they feel? He says, the spirit of the devil. I said, no, you can't feel the spirit of the devil when little kids are dressed in bathrobes. You can't feel the little spirit of the devil when they're singing Silent Night. What my companion was trying to say is that we do have something that sets us apart. But it's not the spirit. Muslims feel the spirit. Hindus feel the spirit. Jews feel the spirit. Catholics feel the spirit. 
The spirit will come and go in their lives. What we have that they don't have is the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that's the chance to have the spirit with you always. The good news is that most of you received that gift when you were eight years old. The bad news is that most of you received that gift when you were eight years old. And then young people say to me, Brother Wilcox, I've never felt the spirit. And I say, yeah, you have. They go, uh-uh. And they go, uh-huh. And they go, uh-uh. And then we're fighting again. I've never felt the spirit. No, of course you felt the spirit. Stephen Covey used to tell students at BYU, when they'd say, I've never felt the spirit, he'd say, you're like a fish. You're swimming around in the water. And you're going, water? What water? I don't see any water. When does a fish notice the water? When he's out of the water. And then he goes, whoa, I was in the water all the time. Sometimes that's what has to happen with young Latter-day Saints. They have to do something stupid, distance themselves from the spirit. And then they say, I was feeling it all the time. I just didn't recognize it. We sing the spirit of God like a fire is burning. I felt that fire, but I don't feel it every day. I'm kind of glad I don't feel it every day. I mean, you couldn't even get through your morning for peace sake. The alarm would go off and you'd be like, whoa, whew, feeling the spirit. Yeah. Then you'd be in the shower going, and you'd be pouring your Captain Crunch. That means you couldn't even get through the morning. So it's a good thing you're not feeling the spirit like a fire all the time. Sometimes I think maybe we ought to sing the spirit of God like a furnace is working. See, when it's a cold day outside and you walk into your house, you don't notice the furnace. None of you walk in your house and go, the furnace is working. Now, when do you notice the furnace? When it's not working. And then you don't sit there and say, I guess this is my new normal. No, you call somebody because you want to get it fixed because you want to feel, catch the word, comfortable. You want to feel comfortable. And that's how the spirit helps us feel. We don't always notice it. But it lets us get on with our lives. It lets us get on with what we're here in mortality to learn and to do. So just recognize that sometimes it's like a fire. Most times it's like a furnace. But you are feeling the spirit because it surrounds you. You have the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now you want to leave the church? Well, say goodbye to the knot in the end of your balloon. Say goodbye to the gift of the Holy Ghost. Oh, you'll feel the spirit now and then. But you're not going to be able to feel it always. And that means you're going to miss the guidance. You're going to miss the testimony. You're going to miss the direction, the peace, the comfort, the sanctification that that spirit can bring into your life. I don't want to miss those things. I need them too desperately. Jesus. P, P stands for priesthood, priesthood. How many of you used to play school? Okay, good. I'm glad to see those hands up. How many of you used to play church 
I'm glad to see a few hands go up. My kids played church. They'd pull out the stuffed animals. They'd put them on the couch. They'd sing the song. They'd do the talk. Got a little nervous when my daughter started blessing the sacrament. But um, they'd, they'd play church. And I used to think, oh, that's so cute. It's so cute. But now I'm older. And I realize it wasn't just cute. It's actually what most people in the world are doing. They're playing church. They're sincere. They want it to count. But they don't have the authority. They don't have God's permission. So that the things they do really count on earth and in eternity. Man, I want what I'm doing to count. And to be able to have that, we have to have the priesthood. We have to have that. I... Uh, I lived in Wyoming while I was getting my PhD and I was working at the university in what they called the writing center. And in the writing center, people would come and get help with their papers. And I would supervise a few tutors who worked there with me. Well, one girl came late to work and I said, where have you been? She says, I'm sorry, but I was at my wedding rehearsal and I just, I'm just so upset. I said, maybe you shouldn't marry him. And she said, I'm not upset at my fiance. I'm upset at the preacher. I said, how can you be mad at a preacher? They're nice. She said, well, I'm not mad at the preacher. I just don't like those words. What words is she talking about? Till death do you part. Most churches don't say that anymore. Now they say, as long as you both shall live. It's the same thing. And she didn't like those words. She said, I feel like I'm getting divorced the day I'm getting married. I was like, whoa, this is like a missionary moment. This is a missionary moment. I mean, Brad, come on, don't blow it. Don't blow it. So I said, in my church, we get married in the temple where we are sealed for time and all eternity. And she went, oh, I love that. And I said, fill the font. I'm going to baptize this girl right now. No, she didn't want to get baptized. She didn't even want to meet the missionaries. But she did want to rewrite her wedding ceremony. So she went to the minister and she said, may I write my own ceremony? And he said, for an extra fee. So she paid the extra money and she wrote her own ceremony. And I sat there in that Protestant church and listened as the preacher sealed them for time and all eternity. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm freaking out. I'm like, whoa. Everybody in the church was like, oh, that is so special. I was like, that is so wrong. That's just like wrong, like lightning bolt wrong. Why? It's a free country. They can say whatever they want to say. Why did I feel it was wrong? Authority. No authority. They just didn't have permission 
to say those words. And so did it count eternally? No, because they were playing church. And in our church, we don't play church. We have the authority to make that count on earth and in heaven. And that is something I don't want to say goodbye to. Now, sadly, you live in a time where a lot of people get uptight about priesthood issues. It's one of the most glorious things we have in the church. And yet people want to sit and fight about it and get uptight about it. Now, I don't mean to oversimplify a complex issue, but I sure think we make it a little harder than it needs to be. How come the blacks didn't get the priesthood until 1978? What's up with that, Brother Wilcox? What, Brigham Young was a jerk? Members of the church were prejudiced? Maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe instead of saying, why did the blacks have to wait until 1978? Maybe what we should be asking is, why did the whites and other races have to wait until 1829? 1,829 years they waited. And why did the Gentiles have to wait until after the Jews? And why did everybody in the house of Israel, except the tribe of Levi, have to wait until... When you look at it like that, then instead of trying to feel like you have to figure out God's timeline, we can just be grateful grateful right down to our socks that the blacks received the priesthood in 78. Grateful right down to our socks that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery had the priesthood restored to them in 1829. Maybe we should just feel grateful. Yeah, but Brother Wilcox, how come the girls don't have the priesthood? I mean, that's what I want to know. How come the girls don't have the priesthood? What's up with that? Girls, you're going to hear a lot of people say a lot of things, and many of them say them with very angry voices. But just because somebody's angry doesn't necessarily make him or her right. Just because somebody's loud doesn't necessarily make him or her right. I was at a professional conference for BYU. I had a name tag. It said Brad Wilcox, Brigham Young University. Some lady walked up to me that I didn't even know. She sees my name tag and she's like, Oh, why don't you give women the priesthood? Just like that. And I said, good to meet you too. And then I asked, what's the priesthood? And she said, well, I don't know, but I think the women should have it. Seriously? I don't know but the women should have it. What's malaria? I don't know, but the women should have it. I mean, I'm going to let her voice that's very shallow drown out my testimony just because she's loud? No way. Girls, listen closely because I don't know that you'll ever have somebody explain it quite this point blank again. You have, a, you have access to every priesthood blessing. There is not one priesthood blessing that you are denied. 
and you serve with priesthood authority. When you are set apart in a class presidency or you're set apart as a missionary or in any calling in the church, you serve with priesthood authority. You will go to temples where you will be endowed with priesthood power and you will dress in priesthood robes. How come the girls don't have the priesthood? What the heck are they talking about? Your life exudes priesthood. It's surrounded by priesthood. It emanates priesthood. So what is it that women don't have? Two things. One, priesthood keys. And two, priesthood ordination. Well, how come women don't have priesthood keys? Well, how come most men in the church don't have priesthood keys? Priesthood keys are an organizational structure. It's how God's house is a house of order. And so not everybody needs them, just those who are part of this organizational structure. So how many men in a ward have priesthood keys? The spirit is whispering. The spirit is whispering. Four, oh, you knew it. You knew it. I'm so proud of you. Let's name them. The bishop, the elders quorum president, the teachers quorum president, and the deacons quorum president. So girls, don't mix keys up with influence. We're certainly not saying the only ones who have influence in the church are the bishop, the elders quorum president, the teachers quorum president, and the deacons quorum president. Surely there are others at all levels of the church who have great influence without having keys. So don't mix those up. Don't, don't think that that's something that's needed to be able to make a difference. What else don't women have? Priesthood ordination. They're not ordained to the priesthood. Well, how come they're not ordained to the priesthood? Maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe we should be asking, why don't they need to be? Girls, how many of you have ever entered a temple to perform ordinances? Okay, raise your hands high. Raise them high. Okay, do you realize that you have done something that no man on this earth can do? There is not a male on this planet who can enter a temple to perform ordinances without being ordained. And yet you just waltz right in. You just walk right in. So what is it that sisters are bringing with them from a pre-mortal life that men are trying to learn through ordination? Maybe that's the question that ought to be keeping us up at night. You want to walk away from the church? Walk away from anything that lets anything in your life count or matter beyond this life you're walking away from priesthood and i don't want to live in that land where purpose becomes empty and where anything good has an end i don't want to be there i don't want that I want to be able to have priesthood. 
And L, L stands for living prophets. Living prophets. Many people believe in Jesus because of Peter, James, and John. We believe because of Peter, James, and John, but also because of Russell, Dallin, and Henry. Russell, M, Dallin, Henry, same priesthood authority, same special calling, same special witness of the Savior. We are to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places. And we can do that much better when we're standing on the shoulders of special witnesses at all times and in all things and in all places. The summer before COVID shut the world down, I was invited to go to a evangelical slash Latter-day Saint conversation. It was in Idaho Falls. They got the local high school auditorium. They filled it with people. And then they had a minister from Boise represent the evangelical point of view. They had me from BYU representing the Latter-day Saint point of view. And we had a little discussion back and forth together. He asked me, are you a Bible-based church? And I said, well, yeah. Look, if you, finally, I said, no, not the way you're thinking of it. But yes, in a way you've never thought of before. The poor guy was just going, he didn't know exactly what I was talking about. So I explained. I said, a lot of people hold the Bible up and they say, this is my religion. He says, I would be one of those people. I said, yeah, but the Bible's not actually religion. The Bible's a history of people who had religion. What did the people in the Bible have? They didn't have the Bible, not the way we have it today. So what religion did they have? They had prophets, they had apostles. And we got the same thing today. So if you look at it like that, we're the only Bible-based church. I don't know whether I convinced him, but it's true. Back in those days, they didn't say, turn to John 3, 5. No, they turned to John. He was right there. They didn't say, turn to the epistles of Paul. No, they turned to Paul. And Joseph Smith says he was short, so they turned to Paul. And he was right there. And that's the same religion that we have today, knowing that we are led by prophets, seers, and revelators. Men who are alive, leading a living church at the direction of Jesus Christ. Many Christians follow Christ and they follow him very sincerely. But we are the only Christians on this planet who are led by Jesus Christ. It's one thing to follow him. It's another thing to be led by him. And he leads us as he's always led his children through living prophets.
and through living apostles. You want to walk away from the church? Well, say goodbye to living prophets. Say goodbye. Just You have to see Christ through a pretty small window when you're stuck with just the Bible. So say goodbye to the larger window that we have because of living prophets. Say goodbye to President Nelson. I don't want, I, I want him to live to be 120. I don't want to say goodbye to him. Say goodbye to Elder Uchtdorf. No, yes, you must say goodbye. Walk away from the church, say goodbye to Elder Holland. Say goodbye to Elder Christofferson. Say goodbye to Elder Anderson. Say goodbye to all of these leaders that I just don't want to live my life without. I just don't know what my life would be without their examples, without their teachings, without their testimonies, especially when times get hard. I hope you realize that if you walk away from this religion, you lose everything. You lose everything. Everything that truly matters most. So stay put. Stay strong. Look for every possible reason there is to stay and there is to share. The truths we have that cannot be found elsewhere. Okay, here's your final exam. You ready? G stands for? O stands for? S stands for? P stands for, E stands for, and L stands for, and R stands for refreshments. Are we having refreshments? You're fasting today. I'm so grateful that you came, and I'm grateful that maybe something that's been said today might sink in and help you realize how blessed you are to be here. I bear testimony that God is real, that Jesus is real. And I bear testimony that this is the only complete church on the face of the earth. And I bear testimony that we have the gift of the Holy Ghost and all the gifts of the spirit that come with it. I bear testimony that the priesthood is real and that the priesthood makes everything worth it. I bear testimony that temples are important not just because we get excited about the day that they're announced or when they're built or when there's an open house, but we can be excited every time we go and make sure that we're offering the gospel to everyone. And I bear testimony that President Nelson and those who serve with him in the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency are prophets, seers and revelators. And as we stay close to them, as we support them, as we sustain them, then we will be safe and we will be happy. And I leave that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I thought that last section was actually really profound in highlighting both the potential and the dysfunctions sabotaging that potential in the church. Mormonism has some strong and valid critical and challenging things to say to the rest of Christianity. 
I appreciated Brad offering some sophisticated insight and analysis about what it actually means to be a Bible-believing church, when the Bible is the tattered remnants of a few of the writings of a very few of the many apostles and other leaders of the original Christian church, even if it wasn't all, or mostly, made up later, as many credible scholars suggest. Most of Christianity, having lost the other mechanisms of institutional leadership and ongoing profit standard guidance, has indeed turned the Bible into pretty much all it has to go on, and pretends it is enough, and complete, with only minor tweaking by living leaders. They have made the Bible their God, instead of God. I have encountered and discussed this issue a lot in my interactions with other Christians before, after and during my mission in the Deep South Bible Belt. I totally agree, while having great respect for the richness of mainstream Christian theology, that you have to see Christ through a pretty small window when the Bible is all you have compared to the several new dimensions Mormonism adds to it in our religion. This religion and its theology has rock-solid, powerful things to say to the fundamental flaws in global Christianity, and ideas to offer it to fill and heal its gaping plot holes and open wounds that are still completely valid to say, despite the gaping plot holes and open wounds that we still need to address in Mormonism. But we are failing to have that voice, as a now shrinking, fringe, tiny sideshow in the religious scene, because we are disappearing fast, and also because we are demonstrably not living up to Brad and everyone else's overclaiming rhetoric about having everything in our religious lives and leaders going so much better than everyone else. It all goes to poo as Brad overclaims that our leaders are rocking it and receiving Peter, James and John equivalent revelations when they demonstrably are not and have so far had to keep backtracking or flip-flopping on the few things they have claimed are revelations and still have not had the courage to have a common consent vote to canonise the family proclamation because of the can of worms they know that would open up. He and others like him keep talking about how amazing the leadership and revelations to President Nelson and Dallin Oaks and Henry Eyring and their team are, but they never actually discuss what those revelations and brilliance consist of, because all they have to work with are constantly changing meeting schedules and a couple of totally boring or dysfunctional proclamations. The Restoration one, about an outdated McConkie Mormon narrative literally no one references or talks about, and the Family Proclamation, that is just as uncomfortable and already past its sell-by date regarding gender roles, so is also very rarely referenced by general authorities other than Dallin Oaks. Their prophetic performance nowhere matches this hype. Quote, I just don't know what my life would be without their examples, without their teachings, without their testimonies, especially when times get hard. I hope you realise that when you walk away from this religion, you lose everything. You lose everything. Everything that truly matters most. Close quote. 
The reality Brad is not noticing or acknowledging is that if he really wants to keep these young people in the church, he needs to teach them how to navigate this religion without being wholly dependent on the underwhelming performance of the physically and intellectually exhausted and literally dying First Presidency, who are going to disappoint and harm them in so many ways. Root them in Christ, not the priesthood-holding presidents. He needs to speak directly to the reality that the majority of young people and adults who join or grow up in this religion conclude that their lives are far better and healthier and happier and safer without those men and their examples and teachings. And that it is their examples and teachings that have too often, in earth-shattering ways, been the direct cause of their, quote, hardest times, close quote, because they are teaching the hypervigilant, anxious, toxic perfectionism and self and soul-crushing religion of Lucifer and the Pharisees, where you are never good enough or doing enough or paying enough to their insatiable God of exact obedience and submission to every single policy and whim of the emperors with no clothes. So what Brad delivered, among some fun and thought-provoking points, was mostly really unhelpful, and there were so many components to what was wrong with it that it's helpful to try to disentangle and categorise them. First of all, Overclaiming about truth claims and promising guaranteed benefits and outcomes in your life that the church and its leaders and lifestyle do not live up to. He specifically talked about how the new FSY youth conventions, that are usually called culty boot camp, are going to turbo boost and transform the religiosity of the youth and how it has raised the percentage of Korean LDS kids going on missions from 4% to 40%. I am highly sceptical about that statistic, but have no way of checking its accuracy. I can, though, speak about, ah, several years of experience now with FSY in the UK, some of them while I was involved in youth leadership. It really works for some people, particularly those already in strong LDS families. But overall, we are still losing most of our young people, so it objectively doesn't work as advertised. The success stories are individual and anecdotal, not systemic as a whole. But while I loved Brad's opening philosophy that you should be able to be very religious and have a lot of fun as well, I feel the old-style, much more relaxed youth conventions did that just fine for my generation, and in a secular country that had already mostly stopped being religious, in ways the USA is only starting to experience, we grew steadily in the 1980s and early 1990s with that approach. FSY is mostly about intense brainwashing to conform with very strict dress and grooming rules so you can't go there as your true self wearing your normal youth subculture clothes and normal haircut and experience how to integrate religious faithfulness with your normal life. FSY has killed youth conventions as a missionary tool because of its completely unreasonable and unnecessary dress code based on the comfort zones and cultural norms of elderly middle-class Mountain West Mormons 
and the hyper-culty activities and rhetoric and focus of the whole thing, as well as the requirement to effectively submit to a Temple Recommend interview before being allowed to participate. It is almost impossible to convince non-member and less active young people to put themselves through all that. And why should they have to? Why on earth would they want to if they aren't already pretty much all in with high-intensity religiosity? So it is very divisive, in my opinion. Sorting the wheat from the tares far too soon and swiftly killing off the interest or converting and reactivating connections and opportunities with the real spectrum of young people we should be appealing and relevant to if the church is to survive and retain the next generation. Especially outside the Moridor, where the annual youth convention may be the only opportunity most of the youth get to spend more than half a day with other Latter-day Saints their own age in the entire year. It needs to work for all of them, and this is all we have to work with now the penny-pinching grumpy grandads have slashed and burned the activities committees and dances and roadshows and other cultural and social life of the church in their joyless fanaticism. The whole experience of FSY is extremely disconnected from your normal reality and self as you could get. It is modelled on the Mission Training Centre experience, not where teenagers are at in the normal lives they will be going back to afterwards, which is not the highly focused life of a full-time missionary. You are intensely supervised and encouraged to develop psychological dependency on the young adult counsellors assigned to your small group, as Brad described to his audience, as if this is a great thing. There is chanting, and songs, and rituals, and slogans, as well as the uniform. All tactics of totalitarian youth groups, from the Hitler Youth to the Communist Young Pioneers. Intense pressure to have a specific group identity and appearance, and behaviour, and personality type. To psychologically replace your own identity and personality with that of the institution of the state. The Hitler Youth and Communist Pioneers were specifically intended to disconnect young people from their family and local community and culture and identity, and replace it with one determined by the state in a highly controlled environment, combining direct indoctrination lessons and lots of outdoor play and group bonding activities. For this reason, it sent a bit of a chill down my spine when Brad told the kids to get away from their families and find a way to prioritise FSY over family reunions if necessary and telling them he needed them to be there. Just as you would tell young candidates for radicalisation that their Führer or the party needs them to leave their families and participate. I don't care what kind of arrangements you have to make at work. I don't care what kind of schedules you have to change to get away from your family reunion. I don't care what has to happen. But I need you to be at FSY. The Lord needs you to be there at FSY. It is a world of extroverts, not suited or safe for introverts. 
and it is so removed from normal life that when a lot of the young people come home from it to their ordinary environment, especially if they are the only church members in their family, or it is a part member family and they don't have other Latter-day Saints their age in their everyday life, as is much more common in the international church, it ultimately crashes their hopes for their life in this religion. It has raised their expectations of daily excitement and spirituality as LDS youth to a level that is simply impossible to maintain in normal life. So they feel like failures and that they will never be good enough for this church. So they stop trying. We had a young man on the fringes of activity when I was his ward young men president who went to FSY when it had just got going here. Apparently, he absolutely loved it and was fired up by it in the days after returning home. And we never saw him again. It's not the state of the testimony these kids are bearing a week after going to FSY that counts, Brad. Like convert baptism numbers, it's where they are at six months later. Are we setting these kids up for failure and disappointment in the long run with these gimmicks and programmes that don't address the reassurances, information and skill sets they really need to endure to the end? And I would say exactly the same about my next category. Inadequate and irrational arguments and reasoning for belief and trust. Brad offered irrational arguments that won't hold up when the young people actually think them through, thus setting them up for later disappointment and disillusionment and weakening rather than strengthening the resilience of their testimonies when they try using them on their friends and investigators and get eaten alive. He told several lies based on ignorance of or intentionally ignoring the deeper layers of Mormon history and the discussions about it that quickly backfire, such as claiming that Joseph would have only talked about seeing one person as God if he was being intentionally deceptive, forgetting to mention the inconvenient truth that when he did first start talking about the first vision in his early 20s and wrote down his first account of it in 1832, Joseph did only talk about seeing one person in his vision. And there are plenty of scenarios where claiming to see in vision something unique compared to the visions your competitors are claiming to have is absolutely the best way for a deceiver to go. You then have a unique selling point to sell. That is basic business acumen. That was one of the examples of a very weak and irrational argument. Brad told several flat-out lying lies about measurable data points, such as that fewer Latter-day Saints are leaving than other churches, or the numbers of Mormons leaving are exactly the same as every Mormon generation in the past when for at least 14 years already, according to the Apostles' own leaked briefings, 80% of our young people globally leave the church by age 30, and a general authority has admitted we haven't seen an exodus like this since Kirtland. Or 
that the numbers leaving are the same as they have always been when clearly we can see in most of our wards and the church's own statistical reports active membership is plummeting overall when it used to be slowly but steadily growing. He lied that our church doesn't claim and boast about having all the truth or more truth than other churches, then sort of backtracked in that and framed it as cheerleading enthusiasm and then just admitted that we do make those claims and this is how it is. He lied to the young women that, quote, you have access to every priesthood blessing. There is not one priesthood blessing that you are denied, close quote. Some of the many priesthood blessings women are excluded from are performing all the priesthood ordinances, except washing and anointing of other women in the temple, and anointing and blessing their husband in the secret second anointing ritual, which basically blesses him as her god and king. Women cannot baptise, bless the sick anymore, bless the sacrament, administer temple endowments and sealings, have any position to authorise another person's calling on their own authority, make any leadership decisions for a ward or stake, or perform any lady ordinances without the ratification and permission of a male line manager. Women cannot receive revelations for her congregation, or the whole church, even though Holzer the prophetess did for Israel in the Old Testament, and a righteous king and righteous high priest went to her for that revelation. And Eve received revelation for all of humanity to bite the banana. We know the fruit in the Garden of Eden was a banana, because they both slipped and fell. Ha <laughs> ha, boom boom. That's my only joke. Women cannot authorise any decisions about the finances of her congregation. A woman cannot have her marriage to her husband sealed for time and all eternity if she is already sealed to another man. But her husband can be sealed to other wives. That surely is the most blatant example of a blessing of the priesthood denied to women that men get that there is and of the highest significance. And so that list goes on. Other lies were just defamatory and ludicrous demonising and othering of other churches, like claiming his colleague had to pay extra money for her priest to change the wording of her wedding vows. There is no way that actually happened. But of course, conveniently perpetuates the illusion that we have no paid clergy and the other churches are corrupted by paying theirs. Brad taught lots of exaggerated and unrealistic binary opposites and fear-mongering and absolutes in the same category of his overclaiming at Sunderland, where he taught that atheists have no morality and are selfish and dangerous in a crisis. For example, he said the people leaving the church are all now facing the challenges of their lives without God and Christ to help them, as if the only alternative to Mormonism is atheism and abandoning belief in God entirely. He said the other churches have no authority or gift of the Holy Ghost. You cannot possibly have a rich religion or a happy life outside this religion. And if you leave this church, you lose everything religiously and personally. 
He said all Latter-day Saint children from their baptism age eight are feeling the Holy Ghost with them the whole time as their normal. And most dangerously of all, he taught them that most of the time having the Holy Ghost is manifest as feeling, quote, comfortable. And when they feel uncomfortable, this is an emergency and you need to get back to your comfort zone as quickly as possible. This sets them all up for disaster later, when the Holy Ghost is trying to get them out of their comfort zones to something better and truer, and making them uncomfortable with complacency or a bad situation. Or when they interpret hearing truth that makes them uncomfortable as satanic deception and turn on the person telling them uncomfortable but essential truths. Lord knows those of us trying to get the truth out there with our fellow saints crash into that scenario all the time. Another example of an exaggerated binary was when he told them that everything good will have an end without the LDS priesthood authority. There is only one way or reason to lie. So Joseph Smith was either a useless liar or totally telling the truth. In that paradigm, there is no option for Joseph being a very effective and skillful liar or sometimes telling the truth. When your paradigm is that binary and rigid, you only need to find one clearly documented example of Joseph lying, of which there are many, and the whole thing collapses and the trust is gone. Brad was not strengthening or protecting these children by telling them to be rigid and binary and naive fundamentalists in their worldview. He was making them weaker and totally unprepared for what they will be facing. He used childish defamatory insults. Other Christians are just playing at church. How ludicrous it would be for a minister of another church to marry someone for all eternity without our church's authority to do so. Women who object to the church's sexism are repeatedly described as loud and uninformed and not knowing what they are talking about. Girls, you're going to hear a lot of people say a lot of things and many of them say them with very angry voices. But just because somebody's angry doesn't necessarily make him or her right. Just because somebody's loud doesn't necessarily make him or her right. I was at a professional conference for BYU. I had a name tag. It said Brad Wilcox, Brigham Young University. Some lady walked up to me that I didn't even know. She sees my name tag and she's like, oh. Why don't you give women the priesthood? just like that. And I said, good to meet you too. And then I asked, what's the priesthood? And she said, well, I don't know, but I think the women should have it. Seriously? I don't know, but the women should have it. What's malaria? I don't know, but the women should have it. I mean, I'm going to let her voice that's very shallow drown out my testimony just because she's loud? No way. Girls, listen closely 
because I don't know that you'll ever have somebody explain it quite this point blank again. You have, a, you have access to every priesthood blessing. There is not one priesthood blessing that you are denied. Brad was persistently sexist, making a joke out of his daughter playing church and thinking she can bless the sacrament. Twice calling an adult tutor colleague about to get married a girl, or teaching that really only four priesthood key holding men in a ward have special privileges, so a male only priesthood ordaining all the boys and men doesn't really count, while all of those men and boys have a long list of privileges denied to women, thus ignoring, minimizing, and diminishing the impact of this system of gendered patriarchal privilege on women and mansplaining that their concern and lived experience with it is baseless and not real. Also ignoring the power wielded in all of our lives by the priesthood key-holding general authorities. They weren't on his little short list, were they? Classic gaslighting. This was also an example of how he engaged in manipulative shifting of the issue as a tactic to avoid acknowledging the actual issue. All teenage boys and men holding the priesthood when teenage girls and women cannot, was turned by Brad into a concern about how a tiny minority of men have priesthood keys, and then shifted again into being framed as a concern about men having more, quote, influence, close quote, which is far too vague a concept to mean much. Although all those were plenty bad enough in themselves, the issue that really got Brad into hot water was his racism, completely ignoring the past and present significance and impact and pain of the discrimination against people with any black African ancestry, by saying worrying about it is asking the wrong question. And the bigger injustice was that white people had to wait till 1829 to get the priesthood after centuries of apostasy. As well as being dismissive of that gaping hole in the church's integrity and credibility, he was also totally, historically, inaccurate. He ignored the reality that the gospel and priesthood went to all the Gentiles 2,000 years ago, including black people, like the Ethiopian eunuch, and black Simon, one of the prophets leading the New Testament church at Antioch and more recent history, that black people like Elijah Abel were given and ordained to the Mormon priesthood at exactly the same time as white people at the very start of the Restoration. But it was then taken from them in 1852 by Brigham Young, apart from the priesthood of those black men already ordained who continued to hold it. So the entire timeline he was describing was inaccurate, and supporting Dallin Oakes's narrative that also ignores that reality and insists that it was God's will to withhold priesthood from black people from the beginning of time until 1978, in exactly the same way as only the tribe of Levi could have priesthood in the religion of ancient Israel. 
His entire paradigm in this talk was the pre-1978 McConkie Mormon racist timeline and totally ignored everything the 2013 Gospel Topics essay about race and the priesthood says about how the racism was attributable to Brigham Young and his successors buying into the racism of their societies at the time and was never anything to do with God's will and that the church disavows all racism in and out of the church, past and present, and any doctrines taught justifying the priesthood ban. It would seem that Lazy Learner Brad, who is an actual BYU professor, has not got the memo from M. Russell Ballard to the church education system in 2016 that was also published in the Enzyme or bothered to do his homework regarding integrating the nine-year-old gospel topics essays into everything the church teaches its young students. What I do when I need an answer to my own questions that I cannot answer myself. I seek help from my brethren in the Quorum of the Twelve and from others with expertise in fields of church history and doctrine. You should be among the first outside your students, families, to introduce authoritative sources on topics that will be less well-known or controversial so your students will measure whatever they hear or read later against what you have already taught them. You know, we give medical inoculations to our missionary, precious missionaries before sending them into the mission field, so they'll be protected against disease that can harm and even kill them. In a similar fashion, please, before you send them into the world, inoculate your students by providing faithful, thoughtful, and accurate interpretation of gospel doctrine, the scriptures, and our history, and those topics that are sometimes misunderstood. To name a few such topics that are less known or controversial, I'm talking about polygamy, seer stones, different accounts of the first vision, the process of translation of the Book of Mormon, of the, the Book of Abraham, gender issues, race and the priesthood, or a heavenly mother. The efforts to inoculate our young people will often fall to UCS teachers. With those thoughts in mind, find time to think about your opportunities and your responsibilities. Church leaders today are fully conscious of the unlimited access to information. We're making extraordinary efforts to provide accurate context and understanding of teachings of the Restoration. A prime example of this effort is the 11 Gospel Topics Essays on LDS.org that provide balanced and reliable interpretations of the facts for controversial and unfamiliar Church-related subjects. It is important that you know the content in these essays like you know the back of your hand. If you have questions about them, then please ask someone who has studied them and understands them. 
In other words, seek learning even by study and also by faith as you master the content of these essays. You should also become familiar with the Joseph Smith Papers website and the Church History section on LDS.org and other resources by faithful LDS scholars. He specifically contradicted the Gospel Topics essay on race and the priesthood, which I really doubt he has actually read, or if he has, he clearly didn't understand what he was reading. He mocked the idea of, quote, How come the blacks didn't get the priesthood until 1978? What's up with that, Brother Wilcox? What, Brigham Young was a jerk? Members of the church were prejudiced? Maybe we're asking the wrong question. The kids asking that or saying that have actually read the essay. That's literally the reason the essay and the church's official statement it includes from 2012 gives for the racism. It is crystal clear that it wasn't God's infallible timeline. It came from the racism of the members and leaders, especially Brigham Young. So Brad set fire to the Gospel Topics essays and mocked the things the First Presidency in 2013 authorised to be taught in them. Who is Brad actually working for? And why is he being paid when the kids are doing a better job of his homework than he is? Oh, Dallin Oaks, of course. To add insult to injury... Brad characterised the people with concerns about the church's racism as troublemakers, wanting to argue about it. He said of priesthood that, quote, It's one of the most glorious things we have in the church, and yet people want to sit and fight about it, and get uptight about it. I sure think we make it a little harder than it needs to be. Close quote as if it's their choice to make a drama out of nothing. And just as offensively, in my opinion, this actual professional teacher, who is meant to be devoted to educating young people with more knowledge, both as a professor at the church's university and a senior member of the clergy, engaged in assertive thought-stopping. He told young people with obvious and reasonable questions about things that matter deeply, and asking for answers from the general authorities they are repeatedly taught are the only people on earth with the authority to answer doctrinal questions, that their questions are invalid. And he told them they are asking the wrong questions as a way to avoid actually preparing them to deal in future with explaining the reasons for 150 years of racist doctrine and segregation or a male-only priesthood. My sense of things is that the main impact of watching Brad Wilcox in full flow to the teenagers was to show the world what really goes on in our religion week after week in local lessons and regional meetings and missionary lessons to investigators, despite the veneer of very carefully worded nuance and sophistication that the church's more educated scholars, apologists, spin doctors talking to the media and some of the general conference speakers managed to deploy to conceal this reality. He was holding up a revealing and embarrassing mirror to all of us 
that spoke the truth more clearly because he was being bold and loud and clear and confident in his delivery, rather than suffocating and muffling his words in passive-aggressive, sombre, general authority voice that is meant to hypnotise you into feeling rather than thinking about what is actually being said from the pulpits. He was using exactly the same ignorant, irrational, immature, slippery and inadequate trains of thought, changing the question and other gaslighting and mental gymnastics manoeuvres to persistently avoid actually addressing any of the real questions and concerns and needs of his audience. We hear this all the time from Sunday teachers and speakers and missionaries, or TBM individuals driving us crazy in face-to-face -face conversations or social media chats, when we try to discuss the church's many real problems with them. They are absolutely determined to pretend the problems aren't real and change the subject, or patronisingly tell us we don't know what we are talking about, or most commonly, that it's never been a problem to them, so why are we getting all uptight about it? until it is too late a few years later and they crash out of the church in a fireball of pain because they never allowed themselves to start processing the mess in a gentler controlled environment when we offered them the chance. We were watching one of the loudest members of the Latter-day Saint Orchestra fiddling while their Rome burns or performing on the deck of the good ship Zion as it sinks. If they do ever get round to sacrificing Brad Wilcox as some kind of scapegoat like they did Randy Bott, it would be an act of complete hypocrisy. Even Saint Dieter Uchtdorf played these thought-stopping games with his doubt your doubts mantra and trying to normalise seer stones as unsurprising everyday gadgets by comparing them to mobile phone screens. The most important take-home for me and many others about Brad's talk was not the style but the content of what he was saying. All the deeply embedded and harmful and inaccurate ideas that are fundamental to that worldview and are wholly inadequate to cope with the existential challenges the church and its young people's testimonies are facing now in the third decade of the 21st century. Pretty much every corner and blog and podcast in the bloggernacle has done fantastic analysis of the impact and harm to people of colour, girls and women, and young people with important questions that this talk did. So if you are interested in other people's opinions and further analysis of it, do have a Google. I recommend checking out Mormon Stories, episodes 1543 to 1545 and Nemo the Mormons, Brad Wilcox in five minutes, for top-notch responses. My main interest in the rest of these episodes is what happened next, and what it all tells us about the state of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. To take a deeper dive into its current startling official positions regarding racism in particular, and try to make some sense of all the competing and clashing centres of power that are currently in play in the decision-making about official policies and declarations, the preaching from the pulpit, 
and what the new teaching curriculum is saying about it all. I've found some really fascinating gems. I also want to offer perspective about Brad's style as a fellow professional teacher. He may come across to you as way over the top in his clownish delivery and going for the gags too much for the serious material he is talking about, and he has clearly rehearsed and refined a lot of his stories and language. But he wasn't boring, was he? We are absolutely boring a lot of our members' testimonies to death with boring, dreary talks delivered in a monotone drone or squeaky patronising primary voice or breathy whispered general authority voice. So if you usually complain about that, don't complain about Brad being lively and fun. We all need more of that, especially when addressing young people. And of course, he is going to have a polished and carefully rehearsed delivery he repeats a lot to different audiences. If you have something you believe is important or funny to say, you want to say it well, and you want to say it to everyone. He may be repeating himself a lot, but each audience is usually hearing it all for the first time, so that doesn't matter or compromise his integrity. And believe me, educating young people involves a lot of patient repetition. Lesson preparation takes a lot of time, and you don't have time to spend hours preparing something new and different for every lesson if you are teaching every day. This is a very different game to having six months to prepare for one general conference talk. If I have a particular set of knowledge or a practical skill to teach my four year eight classes, I will repeat the same stuff four times and will be much slicker at delivering it in a way that is engaging and efficient for the pupils by the fourth time I am doing it. And ideally, when I am teaching that project to the next generation of Year 8 pupils a year later, I will make a few tweaks but basically roll out the same delivery. I have total respect for Brad's skills at holding the attention of a young audience Although he does lean too much towards how you perform for elementary school children he trained to teach professionally rather than teenagers and young adults. As a teacher of young people, you have to bring it with conviction and energy every time to convince your audience that what you are saying matters, even if you have said what you are saying a hundred times before to other classes or audiences. And you have to try and read the mood in the room and think on your feet as you go if you seem to be losing their short attention spans. This is all perhaps why the church gets overexcited and quickly promotes youth speakers who seem to have these skills in abundance and get rave reviews from the young people and their leaders. It is a comparatively rare skill set, combining charisma and that kind of stamina. But what keeps tripping up this strategy of encouraging and promoting youth-speaking celebrities who seem to have the superpower most of the other general authorities are lacking is not also carefully monitoring what is actually being said by these speakers. Are there stories and life experiences they are repeating over and over again true in the first place? or gradually evolving with each telling into a lie, like Paul H. Dunn did for years. 
obviously we can't expect any effective supervision from President Nelson on that front as he has fabricated completely inaccurate accounts of some minor airplane engine trouble into plummeting to earth in a fireball and emergency landing in a field and being delivered from being held at gunpoint in Africa. Are these celebrity speakers under great pressure to stay relevant and keep performing, taking shortcuts in their research about what they teach? Or being left alone to invent their personal unhealthy echo chamber and take huge audiences of impressionable young people along for a ride that is increasingly unmoored from reality and common sense? It is a lot to put on someone to almost single-handedly save the youth of the church and get them motivated to go on a mission, while their line managers count money and have long naps or work on their own regurgitated speeches. Although we are now finding out that the church does employ a team of professional speechwriters for the general authorities pushed for time which opens a whole other can of worms about who exactly is writing all this modern-day scripture for our times. So Brad is a microcosm of all that is wonderful and all that is profoundly broken in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Like all the general authorities, he is a victim as well as a perpetrator of these dysfunctions. He can teach healing and encouraging and wise things, but he can also stand at a pulpit and ride roughshod over all kinds of sensibilities and make everything much, much worse and be harmful to the people he is trying to help and serve and open their wounds rather than healing them because of his religion's intentional ignorance and overclaiming arrogance. In a culture that demonises engaging in respectful dialogues with the sceptics and critical analysts of the church who could have stabilised him and made him aware of the landmines he is treading on and the debunked overclaiming about scriptures and church history he is still convinced are watertight, Brad has been left to stew for years in his own rhetoric and propaganda and naive self-confidence. And like Paul H. Dunn and Randy Bott and others like them, it was only a matter of time till his Pied Piper fantasy world, leading everyone's children further and further away from their religion's true home, crashed into reality and a day of reckoning and accountability came. His speech went viral online and the bloggernacle had an unsurprising collective freakout. His passionate delivery had blown the door off the cupboard with a lot of the church's skeletons in them and thrown them into the street for everyone to see and hear. And as we shall see, as usual, the church and its PR team were completely inadequate to the task of sorting out the mess. Randy Bott was a popular BYU professor somewhat like Brad Wilcox, whose mistake was to repeat to the Washington Post in 2012 the racist doctrines about black people and the priesthood curse that he had been teaching his BYU students for years without any of his university or general authority line managers either realising or seeing anything wrong with them. 
In 2008, for example, he was teaching religion classes to 3,149 students and got the highest approval rating of any professor in the entire USA on the Rate My Professors website. In his case, the church moved fast, humiliating him with a rapid response President Newsroom statement disavowing what he had said and wishing the Washington Post had approached the church for an accurate statement of what the church's doctrines about race are now. Thus scoring a spectacular own goal, in which they admitted by implication that the senior professors in the church's own flagship university, funded by 20% of everyone's tithing, are teaching the kids racist false doctrine and journalists cannot trust the church's own alleged academic experts in the field to speak with accurate authority about what the LDS church actually believes about anything. They should ask the propagandists in the PR department instead. Poor Randy resigned immediately and went to serve a full-time mission with his wife. In Brad Wilcox's case, everything was much less easy to deal with that way. He has a much wider audience of fans than Randy as a global internet sensation and a senior general authority, so something else had to be tried. He was not released in the April 2022 general conference, so it looks like they are going with rehabilitate and move on for now but it seems unlikely that his star will ascend any higher. So what did the church do next to solve the problem of Bradgate? Things began to move fast, and we only had to wait a week to be treated to his next appearance in another online youth fireside, and this time they wanted everyone to watch. You can find out all about it in The Rehabilitation Rescue! If you love to geek out about Mormonism as much as I do, you will not be disappointed. There are so many things here to explore and discover, intrepid listeners. I think I've found some fascinating things about it all that no one else has talked about yet, and I can't wait to share them with you.